BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Do you know how to tell whether the moon is waxing or waning? Like the period of, uh, you know, when the moon is growing larger or whether it's, you know, growing smaller, like going from a new moon to a full moon, we often say that's a waxing moon. The moon is getting bigger and then it it starts to get smaller after it goes full and we say, oh, that's a waning moon. Probably learned that in your science class once upon a time. Waxing and waning. I want to talk about that off the top of the show today. Waxing means it's getting bigger. Waning, it's getting smaller. Are your teams waxing or are they waning? Are your hopes waxing or are they waning? I want to talk about the Trailblazers who came off a big win last night. Very little defense played, but they won a game. Are they waxing or waning as an NBA franchise? If you're buying them as a stock, growing, good time to buy them or sell, sell, sell. What about the Oregon Ducks under Dan Lanning in football? Waxing or waning? What about the Oregon Athletic Department in particular? Waxing, waning, are you buying or are you selling what they're what they're doing over at the University of Oregon? Are you uh, buying Jonathan Smith? Are you selling Jonathan Smith given that he's come off a uh, historic uh, season at Oregon State where they win uh, 10 games, go to the Vegas Bowl, win a bowl game. Waxing or waning? What are you doing with Jonathan Smith in Oregon State? What about uh, your uh, your Portland Timbers, your Portland Thorns, the Pac-12 in general? Uh, what about all the playoff teams that we just saw play last weekend? Are the New York Giants, who got to the playoffs, are they waxing or waning will we see them again every year in the playoffs we see teams that pop up and we expect to see them back the buffalo bills waxing or waning we're going to talk all about your teams and we're going to try to do it in the context of whether or not you are seeing something that is on the rise and growing and becoming bigger becoming better becoming more important or whether or not you are looking at uh you know the the possibility of selling a stock, so to speak, or selling your sports allegiance uh, at a high. Like, you know, the Warren Buffett will tell you, buy it low, sell it, you know, sell it high. But waxing and waning sports franchises, I got to thinking about it. Uh, my daughter took a picture of the moon the other day. She says, is it waxing or waning? I said, I, I need to, I, I got to look that up. I got to find out if the, you know, is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? Is it on the rise? Like tomorrow, it, will it be a bigger moon or a smaller moon, so to speak, when it comes to your sports teams? And I want to start off with the Trailblazers. Are they waxing or waning in your mind? 503-417-7575. The Oregon Ducks football team under Dan Lanning. Waxing or waning? You tell me. How about the Beavers under Jonathan Smith? How about basketball at Oregon and Oregon State? You tell me. You give me the team, and you tell me whether or not you think they're waxing or waning. Who just popped into your mind right now? But I want to go and start with the Trailblazers. I'll get to the NFL playoff teams because I think there's some great examples of a team like the New York Giants that just got to the playoffs where we could argue, hey, they're building. They got Daniel Jones in the draft. 
They look like a team that's starting to put some pieces together. They got to the playoffs. Nobody expected them uh, to win a bunch of games, but they got there. They look like an organization that's waxing, so to speak. Um, I think you can look at the Buffalo Bills and ask maybe some different questions or the Dallas Cowboys, some of the teams that were eliminated this last weekend. And you can ask, hey, have they sort of hit a ceiling where they're now beginning to wane a little bit? Like what what else can the Dallas Cowboys do except maybe examine uh, their their quarterback position and say, hey, can we do better than Dak Prescott? Uh, I thought Dallas had a really good defense this year. They had two running backs that were competent. They had, you know, CeCe Lamb and some uh, weapons at wide receiver. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work out for the Dallas Cowboys. Like maybe there's a missing piece for them here or there, but are they waxing or waning? Like have they sort of hit a ceiling? 503-417-7575 is a number. I want to start with the Blazers. I have a hard time with this one because – I think in some respects, the play that we see on the court, it, you know, is not waxing. It's not better than it was a year ago. It's not growing. It's not headed somewhere uh, bigger. Like the Blazers are not, don't feel like a team that's about to have a full moon here in a couple months. Like they feel like they are a diminished product. I say that knowing that they won last night and they were a lot of fun. They scored a bazillion points. They gave up some points, but it was probably a lot of fun to be inside that building last night and, and see that game. And I think, Stephen, you were there with your family. Like, did, did you guys have a fun, like the entertainment value of it, forget the basketball, was it just a fun evening? Yeah, I mean, 147 points, can't, can't be mad at that. Uh, a couple of nice dunks, Shaden Sharp, uh, Drew Eubanks trying to bang out on people. Like, it was a good time. It was fun for the kids. Uh, fun for my dad. He was with us. My wife as well. Like we had a good time. Um, but like from a basketball standpoint, and that's the way I looked at it. I, I wasn't happy with the win because it's like they gave up so many wide open three pointers to Doug McDermott, and it's like that's the one shooter they have. And it's just like why, why are they doing this? It's just the same old thing over and over. But I will say, like if you're just looking for a pure entertainment standpoint, last night the Blazers were a lot of fun to watch. You know, scoring all those points that is a way to win in the NBA, and that's exactly what they did last night. So you know, a win is a win, but. Uh, for me, I would definitely uh, have the Blazers not as waxing. They would be waning. Yeah, if you look at the Blazers in like the five-year period prior to the pandemic, prior to the bubble season in the NBA, the Blazers posted 54 wins in the regular season in 2013-14. The next season they went for 51. Then it was 44. Then it was uh, 41 and 41. They got into the you know playoffs and lost in the first round. And then they had 49 wins, lost in the first round to the Pelicans. Uh, then 53 wins and got to the conference finals against the Warriors, got that nice path that was there for them. And then suddenly uh, pandemic hits and it's first round loss to the Lakers, first round loss to the Nuggets, and here we are. And, you know, we're looking at a team that doesn't feel destined to be, uh, you know, much more than maybe – uh, maybe a team that competes in the play-in tournament, maybe a little better than that. I don't know if things line up for them, but it just feels like this. The trend right now for the Trailblazers is it's they're waning a little bit. Like they're not on the they're not on the level of like the Spurs, who are a 14-win team, who are struggling. You know, I think they are something like five and 16 on the road this year in the NBA. Like if you're a Spurs fan, you're probably going, hey, this is all about uh, you know gaming for a draft pick and reloading. But the Blazers feel like they're waning. I just don't know if Blazers management, I don't know if Joe Cronin, I don't know if uh, you know the 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 Vulcan uh, mothership is ready to come to grips with the fact that this is not a team that is built to compete in the playoffs. Like maybe 
it can compete for a playoff spot, but not for in the playoffs. Yeah, the other problem with the Blazers is they don't have a lot of assets to really improve their team, too. So, like, that's why they're definitely waning. Like, you can look at the Spurs, and at least they have the thought of, well, maybe we can get Victor Wimbanyama. Or you look at the Thunder, who are competing for the playoffs, but they have a lot of young players. The Blazers are a lot of veteran players and not a lot of assets with the draft picks to go with it. So to be in the you know 12th, 11th place in the Western Conference and not have a big future, that that's where the real problem is with Portland. And so it's going to be hard to even, like, re uh, re rethink about where you want to be and how to rebuild this thing. All right, so are you buying the Blazers or selling them uh, from that standpoint? I am uh, selling. I, I just don't know how yeah. much they can really do. Sell it. I, I just don't know what they can do in, in the trade market. They don't have many trade assets to actually improve this team to get younger or better. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I think they're selling as well, uh, waning, so to speak. But I think they they haven't either they, they haven't come to grips with it or – they're in a little bit of a denial, or maybe they just don't want to sell that publicly that they know down deep, hey, we're not a contender, we're not a team that can do more than just hope to compete for a playoff spot, because if you start selling that, what happens? People stop showing up to the arena. So I think the Blazers probably would love to at least publicly remain in denial a little bit uh, you know, for the, uh, for the short foreseeable future. The Oregon Ducks, let's talk about Oregon Ducks football first. Well, we'll get to the basketball. But Oregon Ducks football, Dan Lanning goes out, he wins 10 games, and everybody sort of says, hey, big disappointment, we were thinking playoff, instead you end up in a holiday bowl, they beat North Carolina, they're 10-3, and three. I'm uh, looking at that, and I think you can hold your head high, but I really think it's interesting, this is an interesting one, of all of them that we're going to do, I think this one is the trickiest one, because... I don't necessarily look at the Mario Cristobal era, and maybe this isn't fair to Mario Cristobal. I don't look at it as as a smashing success, despite the fact that they won 12 games in 2019, despite the fact that they won the Rose Bowl, went 8-1 in conference play, won the conference, won the conference championship game. Despite all of that, I kind of look at that era, and I lump it together with Mark Helfrich, the end of the Helfrich era. Willie Taggart is kind of combined in there. And I have to go back to Chip Kelly, and I go, okay, definitely this is a program that waned in the wake of Marcus Mariota leaving for the NFL and the Ducks playing in the national championship game. That very next season, 2015, 2016, those were tough years. 2017 was Willie Taggart. Then came Mario Cristobal, and it was, it was, I felt like it was waxing a little bit under Cristobal. At least it got some stability. But right now I feel like this program is, is just kind of holding – Holding water, so to speak, is people just say holding its ground. So as a, as a 10-win team, to me, it's to be determined. I feel like I'm looking at the moon if the moon is the Oregon Ducks, and I'm going, I can't really tell if it's waxing or waning. It's it's kind of in between. I don't know what you call that moon, but it's kind of in between, and I go, hey, uh, you know what? Let's see. what I, got, I need to see a little bit more. The only indicator that I have on the Oregon Ducks is maybe to look at, the, the recruiting class and early signing day. And it was really promising. And Dan Lanning did some important and big things. So I have to believe that this is a program that is not waning. So I'll go with waxing just based on the recruiting, just based on 10 wins. But, man, I need to see a little bit more out of Dan Lanning to be sure. Uh, I'll still buy the Ducks. O- Oregon State is a little easier for me. It's I mean, it's evident Jonathan Smith, you know, and you look at his trajectory – it literally is like that that uh, display you saw in grade school where they said, okay, here's what a waxing moon looks like. Uh, here's what a waning moon looks like. I mean, the Ducks, uh, excuse me, the Beavers 
literally under Jonathan Smith, have gone from inept to passable to, hey, they're decent to, hey, they're really good. And next season is supposed to be sort of the full moon season. Like if we're looking at that chart for Oregon State, I think we can all kind of see Oregon State clearly waxing. Like this is a, a case, I think, where you look at a program that is moving in the right direction. All right, I want your phone calls, and I want you to tell me, give me your teams, tell me whether or not they're waxing or waning. You can bring up any team you want, any team you follow. I'll kick it around with you at 503-417-7575. I'm going to take one here from Timothy in southeast Portland. Timothy, who are your teams, and are they waxing or waning? Well, you know, John, I don't really know because it, it, it's just one of those things where I love them both, and that's the Portland Trailblazers and the Dallas Cowboys, but, man, they just tug at my heartstrings every darn year. They they get through the season and they do well and they have shines of greatness. But it, they get to the playoffs and then we just fall off and we we can't get the job done. And we have great key players on both organizations. But I, I think when it comes down to it, we make a lot of stupid mistakes in games and we we hurt ourselves in the long run. Yeah, look, uh, let's start I'll start with your Cowboys, okay? 12 and 5 in the regular season, played in a really difficult division in the NFC East with the Giants and the Eagles both in there. Even the Commanders not bad. Uh 8 and 8 8 8 and 1 this season for the Commanders, but look, I they they also split with the Eagles. So I'll look at the Dallas Cowboys and I'll tell you this. Um I think they got to get better to take it, you know, to take the next step. I do feel like they've hit a ceiling with Dak Prescott. Now, I like I like but don't love their running game. Ezekiel Elliott, when he got left alone, after Pollard got hurt against the Niners, I felt like that was a huge advantage to the Niners. Ezekiel Elliott just not who he once was. So I think Dallas needs to look for depth in the backfield. I like their offensive line. Like they did a really nice job against a really physical defensive front that the Niners present. I'll stay with Prescott unless I can do better, but I think Dallas needs to start thinking about, at least in this draft or maybe this next season, start thinking about, who is their quarterback of the future? And I know Prescott's got a bunch of years left, and I don't think this was wholly on him. But I would I expected Dak Prescott to be a bigger problem for the 49ers, and he wasn't, especially coming off that huge game he had against Tampa Bay. I also think the NFL is such a tight end-centric game. The Niners will kill you with George Kittle, and the Niners will kill you in a variety of ways. Dallas feels like they're missing one piece on the offensive side of the ball, too. I, did, I don't think you have to account for more than CeCe Lamb in the run game when you talk about Dallas. So I think, you know, it, if you're a Cowboys fan, I think you feel a lot better than Blazer fans because, look, save for the Eagles, Dallas would have been in much better position to get a bye in the playoffs, potentially not have to go on the road to play that game. I think it just was unfortunate that they ended up at 12-5 and uh, not winning a division, having you know play in the wild card round, and then go on the road. So I think it was just unfortunate for the Cowboys in that way and in that kind of game. I do think the home field is a huge advantage. Uh, that was a really hard-fought game last week. So I don't think you need to feel that bad about the Cowboys' performance. But with the Blazers, I think we've been all over it. Like, look, uh, I know that the audience here, if you're a Blazer fan, you love your team. You just you want your team to do well. You want your team to be entertaining. But I got something out of the Blazers last night that I've been asking for all season. Granted, it came against the Spurs, but I just want them to be fun. I want them to be entertaining. I want people who go to the game to go, you know, that was worth the ticket. You know, I had a good time. We saw 147 points scored. Uh, you know, somebody had a hot dog. That's, that's a win if you're a Blazer fan. But the prognosis of this franchise is, 
hey, we can all see it's waning. We can see this is not a 52-54 to 54 win team. We know it doesn't have the depth. We know that those teams that were, you know, five and six years ago would beat the pants off this Blazers team. The organization itself is not going to publicly acknowledge that because, you know, they're not going to diss their own players. They still want to sell tickets. But as a fan, I think you got to put some pressure on your team. you got to talk about what you see. Something not quite right with the Blazers right now. Who's waxing? Who's waning? 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Baseball Hall of Fame results are out. Uh, we got a Hall of Fame. Got a new Hall of Famer. Steven, what's the news? Yeah, Scott Rowland, uh, former eight-time Gold Glove winner. He's uh, he's the only one elected in with 76.3% of the vote. Todd Helton just missing out. I believe he was at about 72%. Uh, just men's out there, but Scott Rowland be in the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I did not vote for Rowland on my ballot. I had, I'll tell you, I'm looking at my ballot right now. Uh, do you have the percentages in front of you of the uh, I the don't, people? but I'll, I'll pull them okay. up here. Okay, I, I, I voted for Andrew Jones. Uh, great center fielder. Peter's going to love that. I, Andrew Jones got a vote from me uh, for from the Atlanta Braves. Manny Ramirez got a vote from me. I voted for A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Don't at me. I, I'm not. It's not my job to determine who used steroids and who didn't, and we don't know. I, uh, I voted for A-Rod. I voted for Gary Sheffield as well. Uh, Omar Vizquel got a vote for me, and the great closer Billy Wagner got a vote for me. I did consider Roland. Um, I don't have my notes in front of me, and I did consider Helton. Helton's problem, my problem with Helton was he played in a real hitter-friendly ballpark, and I don't see the benchmarks for Hall of Fame when I look at, you know, when I look at Helton's numbers. I just, he falls short for me on, uh, uh, a couple things. Now, he played his entire career with the Rockies, which meant he was at Coors Field the whole time, and I am taking that into into account when I look at his numbers. He was a really good hitter, but it's not the Hall of Good. Uh, on the road, he hit two eighty seven with 142 home runs, and I look at him and I go, okay, um, you know, pretty good, you know, but when you look at him uh, at home, he hit three forty five with 227 home runs. So who is he? And and I know I can't hold it all against him, but I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think this is a guy that's about a 300 hitter in a neutral field, maybe a little less, and it's a guy who uh you know, fell short of 400 home runs. Like it's not even a benchmark. So I think he's a, I think he's a really good player. He had three gold gloves, he had five all-stars. Um but I don't think, and he had a great season in 2000. I'm looking at his 2000 season, one of the best seasons ever. But I think he's, you know, I think he's kind of like Jeff Kent as a player. And I got him behind Andrew Jones. So um, I think, you know, Coors Field, where he was an MVP, is a huge part of the Todd Helton belongs in the hall conversation. So I didn't have him on my ballot. Roland was hard for me. I really wavered on him. But I'm glad he got in. I'm not against it. I'm not one of these people that's like, hey, yeah. What, what were the percentages on – give me a guy like Andrew Jones. Uh, so Scott Roll – we'll go Scott Roll for 76.3. got to get 75%. So he just snuck in. Andrew Jones, uh, he was fourth with 58.1%. Yeah. I think Andrew Jones, you know, he'll continue to get more. How about A-Rod? Where did he end up? 
Uh, he ended up with uh, 35.7%. Yeah. So much sent anti-PED sentiment out there for baseball. And I don't blame the people. you got to take a stand. But I just feel like it's not my job to try to guess whether, you know, Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds or Manny Ramirez or Gary Sheffield or any of these players, A-Rod, did they use. So I'm, I look at their numbers. What did they do when they were on the field? And A-Rod's numbers and Gary Sheffield's numbers and Manny Ramirez's numbers make them Hall of Famers. The guy I'm interested in is Billy Wagner. Is he getting close at all? I think relievers, particularly closers, have a difficult time on this ballot. He is very close. Uh, he was third with 68.1% yeah. of the votes. I think Wagner will get in eventually, so keep an eye on that. Uh, but to, congratulations to Scott Rowland. He's a Hall of Famer. W- who's waxing and who's waning? I want to talk about it. Let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575. Is your team getting better? Is your team getting worse? Have they hit a ceiling? Uh, I think you could see it in the playoffs. Like the Buffalo Bills, you know, they may have kind of topped out, or maybe they didn't. We can kick that one around. Let's go to Jerry in Woodstock. Jerry, who are your teams? Uh, the Beavers and the Blazers. Uh, okay, go, go ahead. for the Beavers uh, until they finally get their act back together with basketball. Um, you know, the thing, it was fun to watch the Blazers last night right off the bat, uh, obviously, but I still – over the last several games, I still go back to the same things that we've been talking about forever, and that's the roster. When I look at some of these teams, and then I see 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", you know, we, I, I like Jeremy Grant at a, at a small forward, like him a lot. Um, Nurk, he's played great last night, but then you look at some of the other ones, and he, and he does this ballet moves like he's the, like he's got the coordination of a Jokic or a, even a Sabonis as a big man, and he doesn't, although they would both dunk when the dunk is there in their face being presented to him. But Nurk, he just frustrates me when he doesn't go up strong and play consistently aggressively as he has the tools to do it. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But we're, we're back in a situation where we still don't have the size at the right spots. We, we don't have both uh, an active and strong uh, performance at a power forward and a center at the same time. And we're small at, uh, at, the, uh, at the guard, at least one of the guards. Obviously, who's going to refute, you know, and I love watching Simons and Lillard both be hot, and I love Lillard. He's obviously not going anywhere. But still, we get right back into the same roster issue where it's the balance. And uh, and then Josh Hart, you got to love his energy, but sometimes he gets up there in the air with no idea where the ball's going to go, or they get somehow this willy-nilly interior passing that they can get roped into where – they're throwing turnovers, so it's, you know, I'd like to say that they're getting better, but uh, gosh, I just want to see it, but I don't. Yeah, I don't see it with the Blazers right now in the short term. I think there's going to, you know, I think the right thing to do, Spurs are probably doing it right now, some others have done it, is you got to pull the Band-Aid off at some point. you got to say, okay, we need to pivot. But I think there's a real temptation from a franchise like Portland small market franchise that does very well with fans even when the team struggles. I think there's a real temptation for this team to do what Oregon State did back in the day under Mike Riley, which is to try to game the whole operation 
from ticket sales and sponsorships to the on-court product, the whole operation is gamed towards, hey, if we can just make the playoffs, um, people will renew their season tickets. Um, we don't need to get crazy here trying to do a full rebuild. Uh, Oregon State in football under under Mike Riley, you know, it really did shoot for, hey, let's win six or seven. If they get more than that, great. But the goal, you know, the internal goal at Oregon State was, here's the formula. Just be bowl eligible and people renew their season tickets. It's the same formula that the Blazers are using. The Blazers are going, hey, if we can just, if we can just get to a point where we make the playoffs routinely, that's enough. People will stay engaged. And it doesn't help you because you don't see trajectory because there is none. But I think the rest of us are kind of looking at it going, hey, um, you know, this is, uh, this is problematic and we can see that it's kind of flat. And, you know, what happens when Damian Lillard gets tired of being here? Because, you know, you, the caller made the comment, like, Dame's not going anywhere. I'm not so sure. Like, for now, I think that's accurate. But how much, how much more of getting his brain beat in and looking at, hey, you know, we need to win two or three so we can get back into this play-in sweepstakes. Can a star player who knows he can do better, how much, how much can that guy take? And that's where we're at right now with Damian Lillard. That's why the media keeps asking him that question. Who's waxing? Who's waning? We'll talk more about it coming up. Plus, uh, today's show, it's going to be special today. You know, we're going to get a visit from uh, legendary Oregon Ducks broadcaster Jerry Allen. He's going to join us in the 4 o'clock hour. Mike Parker, the legendary Beavers broadcaster, will join us in the 5 o'clock hour. Why am I bringing these guys on? I brought it up on yesterday's show. I, you know, I was thinking about Bill Shonley, the passing of the late, great Bill Shonley. They don't make broadcasters like these guys anymore. The, you know, apologies and all due respect to the current play-by-play broadcasters who are just breaking in in different jobs. I think the relationship that Jerry Allen has with Duck fans, the relationship that Mike Parker has with Beaver fans, the relationship that Bill Shonley had with Blazer fans, I think it's different. And I think it's special. And I think there's a deep connection with these fan bases and these broadcasters. I want to talk about it with the two remaining broadcasters at Oregon and Oregon State, Jerry Allen, Mike Parker, one of them in the 4 o'clock hour, one of them in the 5 o'clock hour. All of that on today's show. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jerry Allen, voice of the Oregon Ducks, will be on the show in the 4 o'clock hour. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, will be on the show in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also get a visit from Jeff Wohler, the uh, former managing editor, the uh, Oregonian and sports editor of the Oregon Journal, and the first statistician that sat with Bill Shonley back in the day uh, as the Blazers chased a championship. Jeff Wohler will be on the show at 4 o'clock. Anna will pop in as well. Uh, waxing or waning, that's what we've been talking about. I want to pivot to college basketball a little bit. Wayne Tinkle in Oregon State. Dana Altman and the University of Oregon. Waxing, waning. Go, Stephen. Ducks, are they waxing or waning under Dana Altman? I'm concerned. I am too, uh, but I still think it's, I would still say waxing. It's still, I would still buy Dana Altman and the Ducks 
I do think that he's going to continue recruiting talent, but I do think he's a great X's and O's coach. I do. I will find it very interesting if Brody James comes to the Ducks because do you think gonna, he needs him? Do you think he needs that headache? Does I, he need that circus? I don't know, but what I do know is that it'll bring a lot of eyeballs to the University of Oregon basketball program. And the fact that they've been down the last couple of years, I do think that it would help them. I, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily going to help on the court, but off the court, I think it can help. And if Dana Altman is as good as I think he can be as a coach, I think it can actually help a lot if he comes to the Oregon Ducks. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, I think he can handle the circus, and I think it would be worth it because – like college basketball, I'm a big college basketball fan, but like I understand it's not the best product and people don't necessarily care. But Bronny's one of those players that no matter what school he goes to, all eyes are going to be on him. There's going to be a lot of national TV games. They'll have like little stat tracker showing how many points he has on the bottom line. Like that's how big of a how big of a, you know, how big of a uh, prospect this guy is just because of his name and who he is. So I do think it's very important that the Ducks get back on the uh, national scene. Right, because they've been down the last couple of years. So I'm still buying the Ducks a little bit. I think they're waxing the Beavs. I think I think they are. I think they were waning. I think they're waning, and you know, coming off the Elite run, I, their talent wasn't great. But this year, they have shown some signs of improvement. They're one of the youngest teams in the nation, but I just don't see the talent necessarily there. Um, and I like Wayne Tinkle as a coach. I just don't think he can bring in the necessary talent uh, to get Oregon State. So I, I think I'm actually opposite on both those teams. I think it's waxing for the Ducks, waning for the Beavs. Yeah, I think I think it's hard to argue that Oregon State, since the Elite Eight, they just have not had the results on the court. I think Wayne Tink will be the first person to sort of publicly acknowledge he said it numerous times. They made some mistakes in recruiting in the wake of the Elite Eight. Maybe they were hurt by the pandemic. They were recruiting via Zoom, uh, you know, and I think they probably should have got out and talked to people and looked people in the eyes because they I think they lost – you know, the, the sons of the coaches, so to speak, in the program, and then suddenly we're faced with having to recruit other players. This year's team plays harder than last year's, has less dysfunction than last year's. Um, I, I, I'm i hesitant to say anything more, though, that than they're waning until I see proof of life. I need to see this team have an uptick, and I don't know if that's coming at the end of this season because it feels like that's really ambitious, but... I feel like next season for Wayne Tinkle becomes very important because if I'm Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, I need to see proof of life, proof of trajectory. You know, your focus right now is on football on the west side of Research Stadium, but next season is where you'd really like to see Wayne Tinkle's team take a big step forward. And and look, let's be, be realistic. Like, Oregon State doesn't have to win the Pac-12 to show that performance. They don't have to be in front of Arizona and Oregon and and others. Arizona State looks pretty good under Bobby Hurley right now. But, you know, Bobby Hurley figured out the transfer game. I was down there Thursday and Saturday. I saw them play. They lost to UCLA. They lost to USC. But Bobby Hurley's starting four transfers. Two kids from Nevada, a kid from Auburn, another one from Ohio State. He's figured out the transfer game. Uh, Wayne Tingle's got to figure out the portal. And I think that's the path for Oregon State back. Now, Oregon... I'm not sold that Bronny James – first of all, I'm not sold that Bronny James really wants to go to Oregon. He's he's narrowed down his final schools to Ohio State, USC, and Oregon. Um, there will be a final decision, I guess, at the end of this basketball season, a lot of speculation and whatnot. I think Oregon's in this probably only because of Nike and LeBron's relationship with Nike. 
And I felt like when LeBron went public and he kind of talked about Dana knows and all this stuff this week, I felt like LeBron is trying to create some leverage for these other offers. I think all things being equal, most people who follow college basketball expect Bronny James to end up at USC. But we'll see. We'll see if, uh, you know, is the show going to Eugene? I just can't see LeBron being interested in all of that extra travel to Eugene, and I don't think that Bronny James gets what he needs out of this thing by going to Eugene. I think I think he needs the stage. I think his, you know, he needs to be, there's all this talk about a film school and what's important to him. I think he needs to be in the L.A. area. I would expect, I my bet is on USC, but I also think, you know, Look, Oregon needs to get back to what made it great in the first place. Oregon needs to get back to the model that created Dylan Brooks, Tyler Dorsey, Jordan Bell, some real depth, Peyton Pritchard from the mean streets of West Lynn. And I think Dana Altman's trying to get back there with Jackson Shellstad. And I don't think the Bronny James show... Uh, fits now with this. It, it you know, and maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe Nike will come in and say, "No, we have to have this. this is going to be so much exposure. It's going to be great for the program." But it feels like this could potentially be a massive distraction for a player who is really good. But let's face it: if he's not the son of LeBron James, is he is he in demand in the way that he is? You know, right now, like, is he commanding all the attention in the headlines? Are we talking about him on the show? We're probably not. So. Let's see where he ends up, but I think, um, you know, people have said Oregon's the front runner, USC's in the mix, but I kind of feel like the same motivation that moved LeBron James to the Lakers, being in L.A., entertainment, all the production, reality show, all that stuff that was talked about before he became a free agent and went to the Lakers, it's kind of the same stuff I think that's going to play into this Bronny James decision. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, Chris is in... Portland, he wants to talk a little hockey. Who's your hockey team? Colorado Avalanche. Are they waxing or waning? Well, I think they're waxing now. They uh, they had a, a real rough stretch this season with a lot of injuries, and uh, it was not looking really good. They went in to play uh, the Blackhawks, and they lost a terrible game. And after that, they had a they had a team meeting, and uh, since that since that team meeting, they've won five in a row. Most of those games on the road. Tonight they got a game at uh, uh, at home against uh, the Washington Capitals, yep. and they uh, got Ovechkin coming in. So it'll be interesting to see how how they do. Let me ask game. you a question: Since you're in Portland, uh, NHL at, at Moda Center, how fast would you sign up for tickets if there were an NHL team in Portland? <laughs> well, I, I would hope that they would keep the ticket prices lower than what they do up in in Seattle. Um, but I, I would try and get I would try and get tickets as as, as many as I could. I, I don't I don't make a ton of money. Well, I tell you this: uh, your team's sitting pretty, man. I think when you look at you know the picture of the NHL, people talk about Boston. I'm not a hockey expert. They talk about Vegas, Toronto, uh, Colorado's in that conversation. How fast would you would you enjoy? Have you been to a hockey game, a NHL game, Stephen? Never an NHL, just the Winter Hawks. Winterhawks are good. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Good experience. Been there. Love it. But there's something about an NHL experience. It's uh, it's lights out. I mean, it's fast moving. It's good. The thing that struck me, like I didn't grow up on hockey, was uh, the size of the players. Massive individuals that you would expect to be playing tight end in the NFL 
are uh, floating around the ice, uh, and it's a fun game. I think it's uh, – people always say it's better in person. It is. It's one of these sports that's much better in person than it is on TV, even with the improvements that they've made. Our big splash is coming up. I want you here for it. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Five-time All-Star Scott Rowland got in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He's elected. The guy that should be in the Hall of Fame that the Veterans Committee should have rectified is Dale Murphy. Uh, and this should have happened uh, you know, months ago when this uh, committee was looking at what the Baseball Writers Association overlooked. I voted and voted and voted for Dale Murphy, and not just because I host a radio show in the state of Oregon and he was born in Portland, Oregon, but uh, because Dale Murphy... You know, he won a couple of MVP awards. He was the best player in baseball for like a decade. Like, when you look back and you go, okay, who had a better decade than Dale Murphy? Um, You know, nobody did. The problem that Dale Murphy had came at the end of his career as he probably played about a season and a half to two seasons too long. His average struggled, and people remember him hitting 161 and uh, over 63 games with the Phillies in 92, and then he came back in 93 with Colorado. He was trying to get to 400 home runs. He ended up with 398 home runs. He just couldn't get there. But uh, I think he hurt himself in the end. But when you look at Dale Murphy's you know, career numbers, they, they uh, compare very favorably with players who are in the Hall of Fame. He's just a guy that I think gets overlooked all the time. Dale Murphy, friend of this show, and a guy who played in uh, seven All-Star games and won two MVP awards. Give me a break. Put that guy in the Hall of Fame already. Uh, he belongs there. And I think uh, he gets hurt because people don't, the voters don't remember him in the meat of his career, playing every day and dominating baseball. But congratulations to Scott Rowland, who gets in the Hall of Fame. I think some other guys will get in in the coming years. Uh, the Baseball Writers Association will release the ballots publicly of people who wanted their ballots to be released. I do. I put my ballot at, I check the box that says go ahead and release my ballot. But um, I think it's still interesting. We're still dealing with the hangover of the steroid PED era. You know, what do you do with Sheffield? What do you do with, uh, what do you do with A-Rod who, uh, you know, everybody knows used PEDs, but wait a minute, did other guys use them? What do you do with, uh, you know, what do you do with Manny Ramirez? What do you do with a bunch of these guys, pitchers in particular. But um, I always find it interesting to, to eavesdrop on those debates. But I'll tell you, when that ballot gets in front of you, it was really hard for me not to just go, I, there's, so many, there's some fog here. It's not my job to determine who did or didn't use PEDs. That was baseball's job. Baseball was supposed to figure out who was eligible to play. Baseball was supposed to drug test, and figure out if Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire or Roger Clemens should be on the field. Wasn't some writer in the press box that should be charged with eyeballing him and going, eh, he looks like he's on roids. Can't have him out there. That's, that's what they're asking us to do by giving us this ballot retroactively going, all right, uh, go ahead and vote for the players who belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Good luck. Good luck trying to figure out. Like I can remember looking at Mike Piazza. People went, oh, that guy uses steroids. Other people went, no, he doesn't. Gary Sheffield, same conversation. I brought Sheffield on the show. 
And I asked him point blank, do you ever use PEDs? He says, no. What am I supposed to do? Go, oh, no, no, no. I saw your biceps. I saw how far you hit the ball when you were playing. There's no way you weren't using PEDs. That's not my job. So I'm really frustrated with it, and I have considered over the years not voting. But I, I guess I'm trying to wait out this whole era where baseball kind of, uh, you know, goes away and the uh, PED guys, you know, come off the ballot. But I had this problem starting in about 2012 where you started to see Bonds, uh, Clemens, McGuire, and others coming down the pipeline. And there have been some really easy ballots like Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, Frank Thomas, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, Ken Griffey was a no-brainer. Um, but there were some tough ones. Like Piazza was tough. Piazza got in. He got my vote. Jeff Bagwell got my vote and got in. So how do I look at Sheffield? How do I look at A-Rod? How do I look at Bonds and go, you don't belong in there? Like we can all sit around and go, hey, it's, it's despicable that these guys used or may have used in some cases. But we don't really know. And so I've kind of fallen back. Easy to say when you're on a bar stool, they don't belong in the Hall of Fame, but put the ballot in front of you, and then you start looking at Manny Ramirez, you start looking at A-Rod, you start looking at Sheffield and Bonds and Clemens back in the day, and then you have to go, you know, gosh, do I think they used or not? Do they belong in the Hall of Fame? And at some point, I just decided, that's not my role. Like, baseball, let them play. Like, it's interesting to me, even with, like, you know, let's just say retroactively, uh, we find out that um, that the quarterback at Georgia this last season uh, was on PEDs retroactively. Do they take the national championship away from Georgia? No. If he was the uh, Heisman Trophy winner, would they take the Heisman Trophy winner uh, away from him? Maybe. But I don't think that, you know, we could go back and then we go, oh, well, let's look at the last, the, all the Heisman winners in the last few years. Now let's determine who used 15 years later. Eyeball them up. Like, that's just not that's not feasible. It's like a carnival game. That leads us to our big splash. It's the one thing today that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, Baseball Writers Association has voted Scott Rowland, the seven-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Glover, into the Hall of Fame. None of the other 27 players listed on the ballot cleared the 75% threshold, but there were a couple of near misses. Roland got on 76.3% of the ballots. Just missing was Todd Helton of the Rockies. He got on 72% of the ballots. Billy Wagner, great closer for the Astros, got 68%, as did Andrew Jones. Or excuse me, Andrew Jones got 58%. Gary Sheffield came in at 55%. Nobody else in the ballot got more than 50% of the vote. Uh, interesting to see that. There is a pattern here. Todd Helton, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, uh, they, they uh, may not uh, want, to be, uh, want to be sad over this because you do see some upward trajectory. Helton got at 16% of the vote in 2019. He's now up to 72% of the vote. Um, Four-time Silver Slugger. Uh, Billy Wagner, uh, got 51% of the vote last year. He's now up to 68.1%. It's getting better with age. There's a trend here. I think ultimately uh, some of these guys will get in. Uh, Andrew Jones, 58.1%. Uh, Peter Sampson, 
How good was Andrew Jones when you watched him? Uh, when I watched him, he was great. I th- he wasn't a great uh, contact hitter, and he did have the advantage of longevity. But, man, he was probably the best defensive center fielder uh, since – you could even make the Willie argument. Mays. It sounds yeah. crazy. Willie Mays. Yeah, I know some people say junior, but I mean, he probably was the best defender in that position since Mays, who could play so shallow, great arm, great range. Uh, he could do it all for a stretch of years. He won 10 straight gold gloves in center field after debuting as a rookie in 1997. So I, I gave Andrew Jones a vote. I, I did not give Helton a vote, but I gave Andrew Jones a vote because the guy was in the lineup every day. Played, you know, 160, 161, 162 games. Um, he he won all those gold gloves. He, to me, he was special. And that's what the Hall of Fame should should represent. Like, you know, I have no beef with Scott Rowland getting into the Hall of Fame. He's a bubble guy for me. That There were some years I put him on the ballot. I look back at my voting history. You can do all that at Baseball Writers Association of America. Look back at my, my voting history and, like, it, in my mind, Scott Rowland got worse from last year to this year because I had him on the ballot last year. I didn't put him on this year. So I have no beef with him getting in. But I look at it every year, and I go, okay, was this guy special? Because that's what the Hall of Fame is. Andrew Jones was special in center field. Barry Bonds was special. Belongs in the Hall of Fame. Mark McGuire was special. Belongs in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens belongs in the Hall of Fame. I get it. PEDs, nobody likes it. I don't like it either. I just don't. I don't view it as my job to keep these guys in or out based on what I think of them. All right, coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, you're going to hear from the voice of the Oregon Ducks. Jerry Allen will be joining us. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. I want to talk about broadcasting. But coming up next, right here at top of the hour, Jeff Wohler, the last city editor of the Oregon Journal, sports editor for a decade at the Oregonian, and a guy who sat beside Bill Shonley back in the day in the 1970s as the statistician for the Trailblazers. He's going to join us next. We're going to talk a lot of sports. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City. You know, we have been celebrating Sean's since he passed away on Saturday morning. And uh, what a guy. What a career. What a legacy. I thought yesterday's show, if you missed it, was a great celebration of Sean Lee's contributions and connection. Real broadcasters connect with their audience. And I... Sean Lee had a deep connection with his audience. Deeply connected with you. I saw the way you reacted to Bill Sean Lee in the wild. It was amazing. Deep connection with his audience. 93 years old. Passes away over the weekend. Our next guest sat beside Bill Sean Lee. Sat beside him back in the day when the Blazers organization launched... Bill Shonley was in the trenches at Memorial Coliseum, so to speak. And beside him was Jeff Wohler. Now, 
I need the backstory on Jeff, how Jeff Wooler got beside Bill Shonley. But let me introduce Jeff Wooler. He's the last city editor of the Oregon Journal. He's a friend of this show, sports editor for a decade at the Oregonian. And he is joining us now. Stephen, can you punch him up for me uh, on, uh, on line eight there? Jeff Wooler joining us now. How are you, sir? I'm good, John. Been a minute or two, huh? Yeah. Good to hear your voice. Appreciate you making time for us and, uh, you know, coming on the show. Let me just get your reaction. Like, back in the day, Bill Shonley starts as, you know, the voice of uh, of the Blazers. What was your role, and how did you come to be sitting beside him in the trenches? Uh, interesting story. Um, with tentacles even here today, John White was the first uh, – PR director for the Blazers, and I had been a young high school sports writer at the Journal. I was collecting scores on Friday and Saturday nights. John was the executive sports editor, and I graduated from the University of Oregon uh, in the spring of 1970 and had a job in the newsroom at the Journal, but I got a call from John asking if I wanted to work on the stats crew of the new team because he had taken over, left the Journal and become sports uh, PR director for the Blazers. And I said, yeah, that'd be fun. What do you have in mind? And he said, well, do you want to be uh, the stat guy for our new radio announcer, Bill Shonley? And I said, sure, that'll be fun. The interesting thing is John White is the father of Sherry Hansen, who has been with the Blazers in an executive position for the last 10 years, who was one of the best PR people in the NBA and was recognized as that. And so I met Bill that first game, sat next to him. Uh, I think there were about 5,000 fans the first night. Uh, they played Cleveland. And uh, it, it, the Blazers then were a curiosity more than anything else. They had the Ducks. We had the Ducks, the Beavers, Oregon State Beavers, and Portland Beavers, and, and the Buckaroos. And here was the NBA team, Portland's first major league team. But the NBA did not have the oomph that it has now. And, you know, it, the first year was really like people coming not to watch the Blazers and Jeff Petrie so much, but to watch Jerry West and watch Wilt Chamberlain, who was still playing, and, and the New York Knicks, who were the defending champions. And it was it was kind of a wow experience that whole first year. And so I'm sitting in the chair next to Sean Lee, keeping his scorebook and we figure out a way to do shorthand with our hands so I could, you know, tell him how many people, how many points so-and-so had or rebounds. And every game I would come with a, a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that was numbered one to 50 and also had on that same sheet of paper points, rebounds, which is pretty much all they kept back then. So I could just point to it and he would just pick it up as we went. And, uh, it really worked out for, well, I was with him for eight years, the first eight years of the Blazers, and got to watch everything from game one through the championship where uh, the Blazers win, they are number one, and on to one more year before I ended up moving on up at the Journal and over to the Oregonian. Let me play something here. Here's the call from June 5th, 1977. You're there with Bill Shonley. Uh, I'm going to let him speak first. Five seconds to go. The Portland leading 109 to 107. Three will inbound. Here we go. The inbound of McGinnis. Drive, stop, pump, shoot, shoot. No go. And the game is over. 
Uh, Bill Shonley, what was that moment like? Well, it gives me goosebumps right now, John. You know, I mean, uh, to hear that. And I remember sitting next to him and watching it all unfold. And, I, I mean, I just sat there kind of mesmerized watching the crowd, the players, uh, and all of that. They weren't supposed to beat Philadelphia. Um, and the fact, in fact, there's a great Shonley story about coming home. They, they won game three in Philadelphia, I think, on a Friday night. And uh, some of us in the stat crew watched it at my house. And uh, we uh, decided, in fact, it was uh, Wayne Thompson's wife, Malou. Wayne was a beat writer for the Oregonian and a couple other uh, Blazer people. And we decided to go out to the airport, which was not too far from where I lived. And we got out there and uh, the two Blazer employees flash badges or something that got us into the bowels of the airport, and we went out and got down to where the plane was coming in. And the first one off the plane was Bill Shonley, because, and they were flying <laughs> coach back then too. Yeah. But the funny story is he was about five or six rows back sitting by the window with two sports writers, and both told me this story that as soon as that plane stopped, Shonley just hurtled over them and got up there to the door so he would be the first up and the first one out. And he loved it, and the crowd just roared. They Because he was the face of the, of, the, of the franchise then. You know, I mean, yeah, we had Walton, but Bill had not come into his talkative Bill as he is now. And Maurice, who was just kind of, you know, really cool dude. But there were Sean's, and uh, everybody just loved it. And, uh, you know, that... I got to watch him, and I, I wrote something on Facebook, which thank you for reading, um, about not so much the experience sitting next to him, but watching him become who he became in all of our lifetimes. Um, he, I watched him, I watched the fans just fall in love with him, and he fell in love with them. He would, it wasn't so much calling the game, as much as he was working the crowd as well. And he never met a crowd he didn't fall in love with over the years. Our first, the first road trips of the Blazers were, was a two game preseason jaunt to Pendleton, Oregon and to Spokane, Washington, because they wanted to get a market going over east of the mountains, not just in Portland, but in the region. And we got to Pendleton, and the stat crew got to go on that trip. And the first night after we got into Pendleton, they took us to the Pendleton Elks Club. And nobody had really heard of the Portland Trailblazers. Again, it was an oddity, but there's Sean Lee leading the team into the Elks Club in Pendleton, Oregon, a cowboy town. And he's going around just, hi, I'm Bill Shonley. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming out and doing his thing which he repeatedly did for 50 more years. He would go to Rotary Clubs. He would go to Alliance Clubs. He would go to any gathering. He was the ambassador, even while he was a radio announcer. He'd spend his off-season going around the state selling the Blazers. And as I said, I think everybody in Oregon, not just Portland, but everybody in Oregon has a personal story of Bill and how he affected them. Kids going to sleep with the radios quiet under their pillows to 
Blazer fans who get to meet him at the arena. I, we ended up having, he ended up having to have two security guards even in the early years and especially during those early playoffs because people came by and would pat him on the back. We were right there on press row and then right behind us, six feet away was the first row of fans. And he was so popular, and it was distracting, especially pregame when he was trying to get get himself organized. Everybody but wanted to say hi. Everybody, everybody wanted to say hi, and he wanted to say hi too. He, he you know, he he really was the most uncomfortable I ever saw him as a celebrity was when he was trying to work and people were trying to attract his attention. And you see it now on TV with those goofs who would, you know, stand behind a sportscaster who's finishing a broadcast or something and, hey, look at me moment. But these people just, they adored Bill. And, um, you know, that personal relationship it was just unique. I, I've never seen anything like it. And I got to watch it from the start. And that is the most enduring memory I have. I mean, I sat with him for 500 games and for about the first four years, uh, it wasn't pretty basketball, not until Jack Ramsey came. And uh, and then they had Walton and Lucas. And, you know, um, Dan Patrick says to this day, he thinks that's the best basketball team he's ever seen play. The, the Jack Ramsey 77-78 Blazers. And, frankly, the next year, too, they were 50-10 and 10 or something like that, and then Walton got hurt. But up to that, from 77 and then the 78-79 seasons, some of the best basketball ever played was being played here in Portland with that nucleus of fellows. And uh, and Charlie was there to call it. And, you know, he brought it into our home every night. And the other interesting thing, John, after the championship season, I can't remember how many sellouts there were, but all of a sudden the Blazers were the place to be. And they sold out for 10 straight years because everybody wanted to be there the next time they made the playoffs and the championship. Then during two of my 10 years as sports editor with Rick Adelman as coach, they made the finals twice in three years, I think it was, with Clyde Drexler and and his crew. And um, God, they had a chance, but uh, Michael Jordan won. Michael Jordan beat them. And Bill Lambeer and the and uh, Detroit Pistons and their bruising style beat them the other year. But uh, they've been to the finals those three times, I think. That's all, isn't it? Yeah. Let me ask you it something, is, Waller. Think... Waller, when you were there, because you were there in the beginning, Bill Shonley was a guy adjusting from calling Seattle Pilots baseball, um, Seattle Totems hockey. He was now an NBA broadcaster. How, you saw him grow in those eight seasons. How did he change? Uh, he felt like a rookie the first year or two. In fact, he had, he he and, uh, John Clark, I think his name was, who was the general manager of KON Radio, had an idea to, to use Sean Lee off the games and do other stuff. And so remember when you would have me on the radio early on and I would do a history of the week, history, an yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. history moment or something. Well, they hired me to write that, and then Shawnee would go on the air and broadcast it. We did that for about a year, and they paid me, and I did the things that I've done with you, the American Legion team from Madison High School winning the American Legion championship and the Blazers' first game and all those things. And that helped get 
him more comfortable out there. He also listened to other broadcasters. Eddie Doucette had, who I think was in Detroit. Actually, I, I just remember the name, but he he had some sayings. No, he didn't have lickety brindle up the floor. Or, uh, shooting from the Cyclops. Bill already had done Rip City, but Bill asked me to try and find out some of the some of the calls that other broadcasters were doing because he wanted to make his own mark in that regard. He also loved Chick Hearn and always always uh, loved being talked about in the same vein that Chick Hearn was down with the Lakers way back when. So. As he, 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 he became more comfortable each season, and part of and a lot of that, I think, had to do with the familiarity he was growing with fans because uh, those first three or four years, Bill was the one constant and the one pleasant or the one pleasure, I think, that the Blazers provided their audience and their fans because he, he couldn't take these 30-point losses and and this shuffling in of players that you've never heard of before. And, you know, uh, Roland Todd, the first coach, and uh, I, I forgot even who the second one was. And, and but when we got Jack Ramsey and then Lenny Wilkins, and all of a sudden the Blazers were a thing, and the NBA started taking off thanks to Michael and Larry and Magic. And people came to watch the Blazers play those guys and not just watch those guys beat up on the Blazers. I think his confidence grew year after year. And finally, uh, in that great big series with Philadelphia, I think he reached his apex. In fact, remember that did you, you played the uh, Maurice Lucas and getting into the fight with... Uh, yeah, Daryl uh, Dawkins. Yeah. Daryl Dawkins, yeah. Shanley immediately went into boxing play-by-play. You know, because that was what was happening. Lucas is firing a right, and here comes Dawkins with the left of the left uppercut, and it was just all of a sudden for about forty-five seconds. There's this boxing match, and and Bill's just doing the play-by-play of the boxing match, and it was just natural to him. And uh, he 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 was really really good. He was a good announcer, a good play-by-play guy, but even more than that, he he became the symbol of basketball in Oregon, and. Um, you know, you, you and others have talked about how he was the voice of Portland. But in, from my view, and having watched him on the road, I, I've called him the voice of Oregon. Um, I don't think when I ended up with my Facebook post saying, I've been around sports at all levels in Oregon for almost 60 years as a professional. I started when I was 16 years old at the Journal. And I cannot think of any one person who was more recognizable, more familiar, more significant, more relevant and meaningful on a sustained basis year after year in sports to our state than Bill Shonley was. Jeff Wohler, I appreciate your context and, you know, you being a guy that was right there with Bill Shonley. He told me, uh, you know, about a week before he passed that his favorite part was the people. And he that he said he yep. missed the people. It was his favorite part. And you know what? I think that was the favorite part for people as well. I think uh, he was a connection. He was glue. They don't make them like that anymore. I've got Jerry Allen. I've got Mike Parker on the show today. And I think the next generation of broadcasters, um, it's just not the same. It's that, that glue, not quite yeah. what it once was with radio and play-by-play. Jeff Weller, thank you. Thank you I for think, joining us. 
I can't remember an outpouring like this, John, even when some of the blazers have passed. And this has just been a, a unique experience for all of us, not just Portland, but for the state of Oregon. Amen. Jeff Wooler, thank you. There he is, the former statistician. Anna's popping into the studio next. Uh, you heard it. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers in the 5 o'clock hour. Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks, coming up uh, later this hour. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio, not joining us live via satellite, just joining us. Uh, that was uh, a little tribute to Bill Shonley. You heard from his old statistician friend, Jeff Wohler, who joined the show. Later in the program, uh, coming up next, you're going to actually hear from Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks, the 5 o'clock hour, Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, Anna. These voices, Bill Shonley, voice of the Blazers, Mike Parker, Jerry Allen, why is this important and and do you think I I sort of think that these kinds of broadcasters that this is a dying art form the connection that they make with the audience because Bill Shonley it was theater of the mind it was radio and Jerry Allen and Mike Parker I think through longevity have connected very deeply with the audiences and there's a lot of loyalty there but I don't know if there's a generation of broadcasters coming after these guys I think there is but I just think that the medium is changing um, I think there are devoted audiences still. Um, I, I still hear these broadcasts on quite a bit. People know who these broadcasters are. But I think, you know, over time, um, just the way people are consuming content is shifting. That's just the reality. How, did that happen in TV? Like, when you think about... <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I'm just talking about just kind of the connection that you had growing up with, like, the local anchor or... You know, how different is that from a TV slash radio perspective, I guess? Oh, vastly different. I mean, I think it used to be that, you know, come 5 o'clock, many, many households in large cities and small turned on the news. And that was just kind of like, you know, the soundtrack to people's lives and people would be tuning in to see what was going on. Um, but... Very much so over the last 15 years, I think, with the advent of social media and how we are getting our news on our phones, we're watching it in smaller clips. Um, I think that, by and large, you know, families and the way that we live, we many of us are not sitting down at 5 o'clock to watch the news that way anymore. It's just not how we're consuming it. And yet, when you go on a walk with the dog, People will stop you and go, hey, you're the news lady. Or you'll get emails still, here's a story tip. Like, I still think there's a connection that you have, even doing that expert show with people who are viewing you as, you know, uh, part of their, where they get their news or how they consume it or they feel connected to it. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's always nice to meet people and, you know, have them uh, connect with me in that way and say, oh, you know, I remember seeing you in my living room or whatever. Um, and and I'm grateful for that. And, and it's not to say that people aren't watching the news at all anymore. They certainly are. But I just think it's changing. You know, I saw it change. I saw um, social media 
take a much larger role in how people were getting their news. You know, it's not like they were seeing it on the five o'clock news and then calling somebody up to tell them about it. I've got uh, Jerry Allen coming up here bottom of the hour. He's going to join us in a few minutes. Uh, Mike Parker in the five o'clock hour. I kind of want to talk to them about the relationship they have with the listeners. I think that's interesting. It's, you know, in my conversations with Bill Shonley prior to his passing were very much about the people, and that's what he loved about the job. He loved the people. You listened to Bill Shonley as a kid growing up. What did he mean to you? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think somebody along the way said that he provided a soundtrack to their youth. Yeah. And I very much related to that statement because some of my best, you know, core memories as a child um, were just sitting on my living room floor with the orange shag rug and um, watching the Blazer games and hearing Bill Shonley narrate them, it was like we literally would mute the television, turn Shonley on, you know, you'd listen for the trumpets, and then you'd hear Shonley, and it was so soothing to know that he was there and he was going to be, you know, augmenting what you were watching on television. I think that's what was so unique about it. It's like, it's not that the TV broadcasters weren't good, but they weren't Shonley. Like, he had a way of adding to what you were watching on TV on those televised games in a way that was special. And for the games that weren't televised, you know, he took you there. Like, that's really so much of the art of broadcasting, whether it's TV or radio, is taking places, taking people to places that they haven't been, showing them things that they haven't seen. Like, that was a credo that was preached by a former news director of mine, and I, I think it's very valid. And I think, you know, it's as simple as... Makes your eyes glassy. <laughs> yeah. You know? It just gives me a good feeling. It gives me a really good nostalgic feeling. Yeah, and I had asked Sean's about kind of the uh, that whole theater of the mind, so to speak. You know, we had talked about you know, broadcasting in general, and, you know, I played some Vince Scully and whatnot, but, you know, I he just had, the conversations were rich. Johnny can do that. There yeah. are a lot of guys that can't do that, that mess it up. Now, this is yeah. my opinion. I'm not putting them down. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I was calling baseball or basketball or for whatever, yeah. uh, I would get to the point, I tried not to scream. Yeah. I might get a little louder, fine, because it was the nature of the beast at the moment. And Sterling has his own way of doing things, but that was a nice call for John. Yep. He's got his little sayings and his rhymes and so forth and so on, but he doesn't overdo it. And that's the key. How, yeah. how do you know? Is there a uh, is it science or art when you know to let a moment breathe as a broadcaster? I think you should know the moment when you should breathe. Let the situation theater of the mind again the yeah. crowd is roaring in the in the arena it's roaring let it go for a moment or two don't try to overshout the crowd for heaven's sakes yeah bill shonley what's you're shaking your head there i mean it's gold he's precise about that because so much of the time you will see broadcasters not let the moment breathe um and it's it's actually disturbing to me when I see it. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard when you hear what he's describing as trying to, you know, overshout or shout over the audience. And 
in that moment, they're saying that their voice is more important than the thousands of people who are there experiencing the moment and, and you know, sharing that with whoever is not in the room. And so to have that kind of awareness, um, I don't know when in his career he realized the importance of silence and just letting, letting the moment breathe, but that is such a key skill. Um, Jerry Allen, voice of the Oregon Ducks, is coming up next. I'm going to ask him about those very things. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we've been talking a lot about broadcasting, great broadcasting, the relationship that broadcasters have with their audience. And so on today's show, we're going to talk with Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks. We're going to talk with Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. Now, Jerry Allen, you'll hear him, you know, native Oregonian, radio voice of the Ducks. I think he's approaching like 40 years as the voice of the Ducks. He has been there through thick and thin you know him, you love him, and I'll give you a little taste of Jerry Allen. T.J. Ward ends it on interception, and it's going to be tough to keep the fans off the field for five minutes tonight. Halloween night, and Orion has walloped USC 47-20. That is it. Jerry Allen on the call. Jerry, welcome to the program. You've got both me and Anna here. We're going to pepper you with questions, but... Uh, you ever listen to your play-by-play? You get a chance to often to hear one of the calls from from the past, or uh, is that unique for you? No, yeah, no. You, you get to hear them. Um, you know, they're in social media so much, and 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 they're around uh, in our promos and a lot of things we do. And usually, and if I'm like you or you're like me, you, you hear them and you cringe a little bit because you always think, ah, I could have done that a little bit better. Ah, I wish I didn't sound like that, but. But all in all, I, I'm proud of you know what I've been a part of at Oregon, and so it's kind of cool to hear them. It really is. Let's go back to your start. You know, are we talking like somewhere between 35 and 40 years ago? I think you became a broadcaster at the University of Oregon. How did that start? Well, I had done high school and small college for a number of years. I was the voice of the Medford Black Tornado, and I did some Southern Oregon. Um, college basketball and football games um, back in the 70s and early 80s. And in 1985, Hal Ramey uh, had gone with the Oregon football team to Japan for the Mirage Bowl. And I was sort of known around the state doing high school championship playoffs and games like that. And Bill Byrne called and said, hey, we need a broadcaster to fill in for Hal Ramey for a couple of games while a football team opens the season at Japan, something you'd be able to do. And I said, gosh, I'd be honored to be. What an opportunity. So that was 1985, two games. Uh, Don Munson was the head coach. And then two years later, I get a call from Bill Byrne again, and he said, hey, Hal Ramey's going back to San Francisco. We like what you did two years ago. Would you consider coming up and, and joining Jim Shouse, opening the Oregon Sports Network? We're going to sell it in-house and be the voice of the Ducks. And that's what – you know, that's the way it started. I got my, uh, my, uh, you know, sort of my interview, job interview on the job two years before I got the job. 
That's a, a pretty typical way that uh, broadcasting careers actually happen, Jerry. It's Anna here. Um, I'm curious, when you are calling games, what is the hardest part that you have learned over the years? Uh, the, the hardest part for me is, is um, feeling what the players and coaches feel when things don't go well. I mean, I get as excited as the fans do, certainly when things are going well, but when you're around them, you know, every day in practice uh, or several days during the week, and you get to know the, the kids and you get to know the coaches on a personal level, when things aren't going well or when they make a mistake or something goes bad, you feel for them. You know, it's like it's not up being upset or mad unless they really do something uh, ridiculously bad. But it's it's that compassion you feel for a team or a, a coaching staff when things don't go well. That's the hardest part of the job for me. It, it, otherwise, I mean, it's just it's a blast. The connection you have with the audience to me is is remarkable, and I see the way people react to you, Jerry. It's the same way Blazer fans reacted to Bill Shonley. It's the same way that Beaver fans react to Mike Parker. That you're in a relationship with the fans, aren't you? Yeah, you really have to be. Now you want to be. You you want to be. Uh, this was explained to me years and years ago when I first got into doing high school sports. And I wish I could tell you the, the professor or the teacher at the time said, for a play-by-play guy, you, you're taking your best friend to the game and sitting beside you, and your best friend's blind. And you're going to explain to them in the most simple terms that you can with the emotion, and they can hear the noise so that they can live the game the way you're seeing it. And I just thought to me that, that to me, I just wanted to be a very simple, straightforward broadcaster with them. Not a lot of, you know, football IQ talk. I just wanted to be a basic broadcaster, hoping that fans would feel that way, like they were blind that I was giving them a picture of the game. That's great. Uh, you know, one of the things that Bill Shonley, uh, we just heard him talk about, was the importance of letting moments breathe. Is that a skill that has to be acquired over time? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. When I first started, you know, I was all in, excited, and just wanted to, you know, run on. I mean, it, it, just not stop talking, keep keep moving, you know, to explain everything. And and then, and I don't know where I learned it or if anybody told me, uh, but at some point you realize if there's a big moment and the crowd is going crazy, let the radio audience be a part of that craziness. Shut up and let them hear the the, the fun and um, I, I don't I don't know when that came about, but it, that's important. It's really important to do that. When uh, you know people always bring up the Kenny Wheaton call and Kenny Wheaton's going to score, and some broadcasters have talked about you know anticipating the moment, thinking about what they're going to say. But I think what makes that call beautiful. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you're in the moment there, and you're just reacting. A total fan. Lost all professionalism. I was, I was fantastic, up and down it's in fantastic. the fantastic. <laughs> and that's the real part of me. I mean, people have always said, "You, you think about what you're going to say, how you're going to say it." And in my career, I don't have a catchphrase. I don't have anything. You know, of course, the Shans was great for Rip City, and I always would hear him say that, and I think I, I should have something like that. But I just <laughs> felt if it didn't come out naturally, then it wasn't real, and so I never did. I, I just. I kind of let the fan in me show maybe a little too much sometimes. No, <laughs> no I like it. I, uh, uh, it's fun. It, it just you got to have fun with it. You just have to, and I think the fans feel that. 
if you're having fun like they are, I think they feel like you're more like one of them. Do you laugh sometimes when you watch broadcasts? And this happens at every level, and I see it and I laugh, so I have to ask you. When there's a big moment that happens and the broadcaster says some phrase like, epic moment or you know it's like clearly something that it feels like they've yeah. thought about well in advance just for that moment do <laughs> I, you laugh when you hear that it's national guys that are i think national? are more guilty than others like you'll hear you know at a golf tournament you know it's one for the ages and i thought <laughs> he's been thinking about that all weekend I know. you know there are times when I'll, I'll say something and then i'll think oh wow that was that's not me that's uh you know, that's Jim Nance, or that's somebody yeah. else's phrase. I shouldn't be using that, you know. Uh, they're all used. Every, there's nothing new, you know. So, But there are times when I'll say something and go, ooh, that, that probably didn't sound that cool. <laughs> it's fun to me because I get to kind of float between everybody's world. Like, I'm, you know, I'll be in the Beavers press box, and I'll see Mike Parker, and then I'll be at Autzen, and I'll see you uh, with the Ducks. And you know, back in the day, it was, uh, you know, Bill Shonley or Brian Wheeler. Do you did you ever get an occasion to sit down with Bill Shonley or Mike Parker and just talk about broadcasting, or does that happen? Are you because you're all so busy? You know, very rarely. Yeah, it just doesn't because you, you all are going the same direction uh, at different times. It just it doesn't doesn't. I wish I could have had the opportunity to sit down with with Mike and and Bill and and had a discussion. I thought would have been all time. Um, Bill was Bill was special. Mike is special. I, I have a lot of respect for both of those guys. Bill Shonley, I did tell a quick story. Um, Ducks went to a bowl game, and I, I wish I could tell you what bowl game it was, but it was around the holiday season, and we had basketball, uh, non-conference preseason basketball. And I needed somebody to do a couple of games for me. And I'm, I'm thinking, is there a high school play-by-play guy? Who can I call? And Bill had been gone as the voice of the Blazers for a couple of years, and we had talked and how much he missed it and how much he wished he could still do it, and I thought, I wonder if he would be interested, and so I called Bill and said, hey, here's what's going on. I got a bowl game, and I got a couple of games. Is that something you'd like to do? I thought he was going to cry. He was like, yes! Oh, I'd love to do them. So, oh, man. Uh, I went out, we played Portland, uh, the pilots, I think, up at the Memorial Coliseum, and he came and joined me and watched the broadcast, joined me to see the format and everything. And then we went to the bowl game. He did a couple of games, and I'll never forget that. Bill Shonley did two basketball games for me. It was I like, didn't know that. It's like a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. I wonder if he worked in a Rip City, you know? <laughs> Rip City! Oh, I'll, you be, know? I'll be shocked if he didn't. He had to. <laughs> I love it. That is classic because someone of his stature with as much as he had done at that stage in life could have easily said, oh, no, 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 that's, you know. I've done the NBA. Yeah, I right. Know, but yeah. but everybody know. knew. That like one, I kept... That wasn't Bill Sharman. That just was, no. it was never him. When I first met Bill at the Coliseum, I was doing high school play-by-play in the tournaments, and the first time I met him, I, I expected this this huge media icon that was bigger than life. And if somebody didn't tell me and I didn't know, I'd never known that he was the great Bill Shonley because he made you feel comfortable and like you were just like he was. I'll never forget just turning and walking away from him going, wow, that was Bill Shonley. That was, wow, you know. Uh, he was. He would never, ever, I don't think, make you think or try to make you think that he was 
the great Bill Shonley, the voice of the Trailblazers. He was just Bill Shonley. I have to ask you, and again, we're visiting with Mike, uh, excuse me, Jerry Allen, voice of the Oregon Ducks. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, will be on in the 5 o'clock hour. Jerry, let me ask you, because you probably get young broadcasters, especially at the University of Oregon, who want to shadow you or want to get advice from you. What advice do you give to young broadcasters who are getting in the game today? Well, one of the first things I tell them is what I learned early on is is try to try to be simple, realize who your audience is. My audience, when I started doing play-by-play, were moms and dads and grandparents, and they didn't know a thing about the right guard, the center, uh, you know, T formation, spread. What? Not they didn't know you know, technicalities at all. Um, and so I learned to be very basic in the way I described the game early on. And that's, that's what I tell young broadcasters. Don't try to be, um, don't try to be a coach on the radio, you know, be a fan who sort of understands the game. The ones who really understand it are going to enjoy it. And they're going to be able to visualize what you're saying and, and make it technical. The ones who are not really into the game, but, but are listening because they're fans or they have kids or something will appreciate the simplicity with which you deliver the, the, you know, the game. So that's why I try to teach young broadcasters. Don't try to be a pro before you become one. You've got a team on game days. You've got uh, Mike Jorgensen, Jorgie with you. You've got, I'm assuming, a spotter, a sideline reporter. The synergy of that team, how important is it on game day? Critical. Couldn't do it without them. Um, you know, this doesn't work. And you probably... Um, you and Anna both listen or watch broadcast, and you can yep. tell when guys are not matched up very well together. It just doesn't flow. Uh, I've been there, this will be my 36th year. Georgie's been there 34 years with me. John mm-hmm. Lundquist, our statistician, all 36 years. Terry Johns, I think 23 years. And Joy Mack, who's doing basketball now for me, has is, is been there, I think, for the last 8 to 10 years. So, you know, you, you just, you're like a married couple. You know what each other is thinking. You know how to lead them in. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and when things aren't going well, you have each other to lean on. All right, before I cut you loose, I mean, so many Duck fans who have listened to you over the years, um, you know, love hearing from you. I think yeah, great advice on the show, and I think I just want people to – maybe think a little bit about the connection they have with broadcasters, but there's a toll, there's travel, you're gone, you're talking about being in two places at once when the foot basketball season overlaps with, you know, the football season, you know, how, how do you manage that? How do you navigate that with family and home life and friends and your sanity? Well, the most critical part of it probably is, and there's no probably about it, is, is your mate, you know, for me and my wife. I mean, we have three children, and, and 10 grandchildren, and if if it weren't for her, it never would have worked. She understood that I had to be gone. She understood that she was going to be at the kids' plays and at their events and games. She understood I wouldn't be there for Christmas. Um, she didn't like it, but she understood my career, and she she put up with it, and, and she helped me through it. You know, without that, then you can't be successful. Well, God bless her. That's, Yeah, it makes me cry because it's like it's reality. Um, There are a lot of broadcasters who don't have, um, are not as blessed as I have been to have a career in the family I have. Amen to that. Fist bump to you, Jerry Allen. Thank you for joining us. Give your wife a hug. John, Anna, thank you. I will. I appreciate it. And thanks for. 
No, I'm sorry. I just I just want to let you know how much I appreciate you and what you do, and and including you know guys like Mike and myself, and you're there for Sean's for all his years, and the fans. You're pretty special too, buddy. Don't cut yourself short. Please don't. <laughs> well, I'll see you in the press box, Jerry Allen. Take care of yourself. I look forward to it. Thanks, right, buddy. There he is. Look, I, hey, I I grew up listening to play by play. I grew up with the transistor radio beneath my pillow, listening to Hank Greenwald and the Giants and Ron Fairley. And uh, those broadcasters were my friends. And I know the connection that Jerry Allen has with Duck fans. And you hear the emotion from him. We have heard emotion from him on air. And the fact that his family, Anna, as he's talking about his wife, I'm sitting here looking at you. I'm pointing at you because it's the same damn thing. You run a lot of interference in order that allows me to do the things that I can do. And I think Jerry Allen relates to that as well as he talks about his wife. Um, but I think uh, the relationship that Jerry Allen has with his listeners, the relationship that Mike Parker has with his listeners, the relationship that Bill Shonley had for all those generations, uh, it's special stuff, man. It's glue. What a sweet, sweet interview that was. I leave, loved hearing from him. Leave it here. Get the BFT. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Love that interview with Jerry Allen, voice of the Oregon Ducks, Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. It's coming up in about 15 minutes. Want you here for it. Anna, what was your reaction to hearing Jerry Allen? I just love a guy that wears his emotions on his sleeve like that. I think it's really charming. There's a lot a of reason. Heart. Yeah, there's Big a heart. reason he's so good at what he does. There's an authenticity that his listeners um, obviously have appreciated for decades, and uh, I just I, I love it. And his it, tribute to his wife at the end was great. Uh, and you know he can say to me all he wants. Thank you for bringing us on, Sean Lee, me, and Mike Parker. He can say that all he like. But I'm bringing them on because they're great guests. Like, this is, you know, he's a great guest. That People want to hear from Jerry Allen. People want to know, you know, how he got his start in broadcasting and the Kenny Wheaton call. Uh, the Kenny Wheaton call is as authentic a moment as you get in broadcasting because he literally goes into disbelief as he's watching Wheaton, you know, go down the field. I'm not going to play the whole call, but as you're watching – Kenny Wheaton, you know, intercept the pass, it's Jerry Allen's literal disbelief in what he is watching unfold in front of him that becomes apparent. He's going to score! Kenny Wheaton is going to score! Kenny, that's in! Touchdown! Kenny Wheaton on the interception! The most improbable finish to a football I mean, game. give me, it's like Joe Starkey's call... Uh, you know, on with the with the play in the Cal Stanford rivalry, and the band is on the field. I mean, it's and I like that he didn't have a catchphrase there. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need in the end of an era. Like, you know, <laughs> I I don't need that. I need a real reaction. And Jerry Allen provided it, and he continues to provide it. He's fantastic at what he does. Yeah, it's charming because he really he explained it well. How you know you can't be such a smart broadcaster that you leave a, a large section of your audience in the dust who may not understand the game as well as a lot of other people. And people aren't coming to that broadcast to learn about the A-gap or 12 personnel or whatever. Yeah. 
people aren't going anywhere to learn any of that. Like, right. nobody wants to know that. They want to know what happened, what it means. Mm-hmm. Mike Parker, Voice of the Beavers, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it right here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. We've been talking about broadcasting, play-by-play broadcasters, been visiting with some broadcasters. We had uh, Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks, on the show last hour. Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers, will be on the show this hour. Why? Because this show and this station, not home of the Ducks, not home of the Beavers, it's home of the truth. We are uh, welcoming to all. Now, we might have voice of the Huskies and the Cougars on, voice of San Jose State football liable to show up. Who knows on this show? I know this. Mike Parker will be with us coming up uh, in about 15 minutes from now, about 14, 15 minutes from now. So I want you here for it. Uh, Before we get to that, the all-new and improved 5 at 5. We give it to you every day on this show. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. Gary Payton bullish on the idea that the NBA will return to Seattle. He's talking a lot about this. He thinks the NBA is not only going to expand and add a team to Seattle, but he thinks the other one will be in Las Vegas. He's putting a date on it. He thinks it's going to happen in 2025. Gary Payton, of course, played for the Sonics for 13 out of his 18 NBA seasons. Uh, he's saying he's, that he's doing everything he can to facilitate the move, that he's already had talks about potentially being involved in the new ownership group. So, of course, he's talking this up. All due respect to Gary Payton. Uh, sometimes Gary Payton just talks to talk. But <laughs> on this one, look, the Sonics left Seattle in 2008. They moved to Oklahoma City. Everybody hates Clay Bennett for it. It was a mistake. It's probably David Stern's worst mistake as NBA commissioner. It's the one thing I think... When you look at his legacy, he misfired on that. Never should have allowed the Sonics to leave Seattle. It got personal for David Stern. uh, And, you know, they held a preseason game in Seattle earlier this year. A lot of speculation about NBA returning to that city. I think that dream is alive and well. I agree with Gary Payton. I think it will happen. I don't know about his timeline, but it's going to happen. And I think, you know, Seattle having an NBA team, Las Vegas having an NBA team, those things feel like no-brainers. They will print money in those markets. That's why it will happen first and foremost. But the rest of us will be nostalgic about it. And, and Gary Payton and I see this one the same way. Number two, and I go. After six years of being on the ballot, third baseman Scott Rowland has received the call. As you heard Stephen mention, he's heading to Cooperstown. He surpassed the 75% threshold among the writers' ballots. He got 76.3%. This is five years after he received just 10% of the votes in his first year that he was on the ballot. Known as uh, one of the best defensive third basemen of all time and certainly of his era. He'll be in the Hall of Fame where great players are are there. But I also think uh, you're looking at a voting trend. You know, if you, if you think, if you look at what happened with the percentage voting in this vote, you see guys like Todd Helton, who got 72%, Billy Wagner at 68%. I, 
I think it's pretty safe to say those two guys are probably going to get in on the next ballot. I'm not a big Helton supporter. I think he was really, really, really good. It's not the hall of really, really, really good, but Helton is probably going to get in on that next ballot. And so should Billy Wagner, the great Astros closer. Keep an eye on those two guys in the next cycle. Anna, number three, go. Well, if you're tired of hearing about Tom Brady and whether he already knows what's going to happen in his future, turns out he's also tired of being asked what's going to happen in his future. I'm not sure why he got so fiery and started dropping F-bombs, but uh, he was asked about a timeline for when he thinks he'll make a decision about coming back for his 24th season. Now, I have a theory on this one. What? I have a theory. I think this response was premeditated, Uh and I think Jim Gray, who is close with Tom Brady and Tom Brady, agreed, let's do this. Uh This will get people to stop asking you about whether or not you're returning. Listen to the clip and tell me if you think this is scripted. Brady and Gray. Tom, you're leaving everybody guessing. Uh, You said you'll take your time. Do you have any type of a timetable as to what you might want to do uh, regarding your football career? Jim, if I knew what I was going to f***ing do, I'd have already f***ing done it. Okay? I'm taking it a day at a time. I sense you're antagonized by the question. <laughs> you're scratching. It's only I'm the scratching. question that everybody wants to hear. You're scratchy. <laughs> I appreciate your asking. Well, look, maybe not. I don't know. Do you read that as two guys? Like, he does that podcast with Gray. They do a, you know, they have a working relationship together. Uh, it's totally scripted. I, it feels like, to me, Tom Brady wanted people to get off his back, and but also wanted some headlines. But it's it's not going to get anyone no. off of his back. It's just Tom Brady staying in the news yet again because he chose to drop yeah. some F-bombs on his own podcast. Yeah, and I think Jim Gray and he do that podcast. They also do kind of a, a Monday Night Radio Minute that that appears during some radio national radio broadcasts. But I just, I think that probably was premeditated where are we number four yeah that's the hardest part of this is yeah is remembering i need a clicker like the you know the umpire (laughs) what are we but what's the count uh number four yes number four mike tyson facing a five million dollar rape lawsuit woman says the hall of fame boxer raped her in the early 90s and she is suing him under new york's adult survivors act that's according to a lawsuit filed in the state earlier this month He was previously convicted of rape in February of 92. He was sentenced to six years but released on parole after three years. The plaintiff in this suit says that uh, he invited her into a limousine in Albany, New York, under the pretext of bringing her to a party. And once in the limousine, she says that Tyson began to kiss her and ignored her pleas to stop. And there are details. You can go look them up yourself. Look, uh... You know, Mike Tyson, uh, people may remember, uh, served already three years in prison in 1992. Uh, He was convicted of the rape of Desiree Washington, a former uh, beauty pageant contestant. Uh, Troubles for Mike Tyson. Uh, I don't really know what to do with this story. I, you know, as I read more about it, it looks like the uh, plaintiff's attorney said, hey, I didn't I didn't just take this case. I also investigated it. I hope, um, you know, I hope that his client gets her day in court. I also hope Mike Tyson gets his day in court. Um, 
this is problematic for 56-year-old Mike Tyson. Anna, number five, go. Well, on the NIL front, Alabama reaching kind of a unique deal with Learfield, a sports marketing giant. Okay. They're going to be uh, creating a hub, a dedicated hub at the Advantage Center. Mm-hmm. So this will be an epicenter for Crimson Tide athletes, uh, supposed to be the first of its kind nationally. Okay. So this will be a place where athletes can go, and there will be a green screen there. They can shoot all their NIL-related videos. Mm. They, they will have a wall dedicated to Alabama player NIL deals and opportunities a meeting space to help facilitate brand and athlete relationships. So this will be like a, a mixer zone for athletes that want to meet with potential sponsors. Very interesting. This is the same Alabama program that, you know, in the middle of the summer, went after Texas A&M and some others for a competitive balance issue. Uh, look, Alabama's going to play the NIL game just the same as anywhere else. And for people who are familiar with Oregon State, Oregon State has a deal with Learfield as well. The you know Learfield is working with Oregon State to help them kind of showcase their student athletes and collaborate as well. It's not the hub idea, but here's Nick Saban talking in July about you know what he is what he is troubled by in sports, particularly college sports. My biggest concern is competitive balance. You know, the NFL, which I was involved in for eight years, every rule that they have is to create competitive balance. And if they could have every team go eight and eight, right, so at the end of the season, every team was playing their last game to get in the playoffs, they would be ecstatic. Right? Because how much fan interest does that create? You know, how, how much TV ratings and all the things that go into all these things um, does that create we don't have any guardrails on what we're doing right now alright so um, we have no restrictions on who can do what some people are going to be capable of doing certain things other people are not going to be capable but the, the, the bottom line is is we'll lose competitive balance which- Nick Saban talking competitive balance Forgetting that Alabama has more college football playoff appearances and cha- national championships than anybody else. They've been in the national championship tournament seven times. They've won it three times. Alabama has more appearances. On their heels, Clemson at six, Ohio State at five, Oklahoma at four. Georgia's been in three times. Oh, the Pac-12 itself only been in twice. What is he talking about competitive balance? Speaking out both sides of his mouth. Hey, we need to be competitive balance is a concern for me. Says the guy getting to the playoff more than anybody. (laughs) What he's worried about is somebody else catching him. He's worried about Georgia. He's worried about Texas A&M. He's worried about an expansion to 12 teams and a playing field that is a little murky to him, at least to start, when it comes to NIL. This deal with Learfield, it's a good deal for Alabama. It's a good deal for Learfield. It you know it it'll it's a it, I think it's a smart idea, but let's not preach competitive balance while we're doing something that nobody else is doing with Learfield. That's the five at five five biggest things going on in sports.
I like that. I got to know what didn't make the five at five. Did you have leftovers? <laughs> oh, it was really kind of a nasty day in news. I mean, Noticed. I just, you know, between the Tyson rape lawsuit and Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor yeah, yeah. and yeah, it was just kind of, there's a lot of ick today. Icky day. Icky. You know, yeah. I saw a, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think news in general, tell me if I'm wrong, because you're, you're, you've been in newsrooms. Mm-hmm. I think news in general, sometimes, I think it often tweaks negative. It has a shade of negativity, oh, for sure. violence, fires, <laughs> like house fires, bad weather, accidents, always get the headlines. Yes. Has anybody ever tried leading with good news? Uh, well, it's funny because people will say, why do you guys do so much bad news? What we would like to see the good news, but unfortunately the, you know, the testing shows when they do that kind of research, if you do too much of the good stuff, people just change the channel. It's like we all, you know, we all crane our necks and rubber neck on a train crash or a car crash. And unfortunately that's, that's the same with our viewing habits. I'm giving good news on this show. For example, Mike Parker, Voice of the Beavers, is next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest is the legendary voice of Oregon State Athletics, Mike Parker. You've heard the Beavers over the years. Uh, You've heard Mike Parker on the call he's joining us now i want to bring him on we've been talking about broadcasting in the last couple days and why not we got to bring on a tent pole in this state mike parker voice of the beavers how are you sir john it's kind of you to introduce me that way to include me in a conversation about uh, a true legend and hero and the phrases the voice there's no better presence and voice in the history of sportscasting in my view than that of bill shonley and the lexicon of phrases all run through, I think, all of our ears who had the honor and pleasure of hearing him over the years. And not just the, the more famous ones like Lickety Brindle up the middle and Bingo Bango Bongo or Climbs the Golden Ladder through the Cyclops at midcourt, Rip City, You've Got to Make Your Free Throws. Those are pretty well known, but the little ones that I used to enjoy, John, were Hearing, hearing him initiate the Blazer offense by uh, Porter over to Kersey on the guard forward exchange, you know, which is just a, a, a creative, colorful way of, you know, I, I think I usually Jordan Pope over to Michael Retire at the right wing. Okay. He would say Porter to Kersey on the guard forward exchange, and it was memorable the way he would do it. And, you know, if Alex English hit two free throws early in a game for Denver, now, the Blazers trailed two to nothing, and nobody said it was going to be easy. <laughs> you know, things like that, wheels and deals out of the Blazer backcourt, these are phrases that will live forever in my hearing, and I'm just grateful I got to hear them for, for a lot of years. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, did you work on the Blazers broadcast, uh, you know, back in the day, Mike Parker? Only in pre- and post-game shows, the fifth quarter, for three years, uh, I did pre- and post-game shows, and that was uh, the, the mid-'90s, P.J. Carlissimo's first year. And, in fact, I, the P.J. Carlissimo era, essentially, I worked. And uh, so I was – Bill and I never worked together. I had the pleasure of maybe doing stats for him once or twice 
But, yes, I was part of the Blazer broadcast team for a short stint for three years in the mid-'90s. Give me an idea, you know, as you grow up in broadcasting, the influences you had on sort of what you became. Well, I, I'm sorry I missed the conversation that you had with Jerry. I would like to have heard it. He, he is, I think, getting ready for year 37 this fall as uh, yeah. the voice of the Ducks and what an amazing job he's done and how entrenched he is in that world and that community. And Jerry and I both, I think, are we are children of the radio in that when, when I, I almost feel like my coming of age, my earliest memories have to do with the radio and Vin Scully himself, as a seven-year-old, I, I walked into a neighbor's garage and heard Scully calling baseball. And I didn't know anything about sports. I, up to seven, my parents weren't into it. I wasn't into it. Bill Walton tells the story about how his parents were not into sports at all, and Bill heard Chick Hearn. And, and that kind of got him interested in, in basketball, hearing Chick on the radio. And so... I was a child of radio when I discovered Scully. That led quickly thereafter to discovering Dick Enberg doing Los Angeles Rams football on the radio. Very few games were on TV. Then Scully on baseball. Almost all the games were on radio, very few on TV. And Chick Hearn on the radio. And when he wasn't on the radio and the games were on TV, Chick was doing simulcasts. So he was doing a full radio call, and you would hear it over your television set. I can envision those black and white games on KTLA Channel 5, even now as I speak with you. The great Kevin Calabro in Seattle, I also think, was a guy that became beloved in that community doing simulcasts in the great days of the Sonics in the late 80s and 90s. Calabro was a simulcaster, if I'm not mistaken, and Bob Blackburn may have been the first to do that. Uh, in that great Sonics area uh, era on radio, so John, I you know those were the three main ones I talk about in in Chick and Vin and Dick Enberg, and they were my heroes. You know, uh, Mike Barrett talked the other day with me about going to Blazer games. You know, kid out of West Albany in Oregon State, but he'd go to Blazer games, and while some of the heroes would be playing. And warming up on the court, he would be, where's the Shans? Where, oh, and he and his dad would go, and it would be Bill Shanley walking into the arena. He'd be there early enough to see that, and he looked forward to that as much as seeing the players take the court. I, my dad took me to games at the Forum in L.A. when I was very young. And here's Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor warming up, and I want to go high above the western sideline and watch Chick Hearn at work. I almost regret now not spending more time watching Wilt and Jerry and those legends warm up, but Chick was just as much of a hero to me as the players were. And so so was Vinny, so was Dick Enberg, and I'm grateful to have gotten to hear all those guys in the greatness of their prime. Mike Parker, voice of Oregon State Athletics, is with us. Um, you know, you come up in this industry as a young broadcaster. How different are you now? How, how much maturity do you feel in front of the microphone versus maybe when you first started out and as you look back at kind of your, your progression as a broadcaster? Very little uh, maturity has taken place, John. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed in myself in that respect, in that as much as I, you know, admire, and I heard you, I think you were playing cuts yesterday, were you not? Or Yeah. About Bill and, and, and the, sh the shouters and the people that would, you know, take, I do too much of that. I hear myself, and I, I'm not 
of even though I have these great uh, models as my heroes, I've not been talented enough or diligent enough to follow the great examples because with Sean's, as brilliant as he could make the guard forward exchange sound, he was never shrill. He was, you know, maybe occasionally hyperbolic and dramatic and theatric at times in certain situations, but never over the top with that beautiful instrument of his voice. And I know I cross lines sometimes. I get frustrated with officials' calls. That's about the only thing I have in common with the great Bill King, who I think you heard. Bill would get after the officials, wouldn't he, John? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think oh, that yeah. was part of his shtick, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, and Holy Toledo on top of that. Yeah. You, you know, he'd, <laughs> yeah. he'd give it all to you. Uh, catchphrases. Yeah, no. You know, Parker, with catchphrases, Sean Lee had him. You know, he had Bingo yeah. Bango Bongo. He had Rip City. Um, you know, or were you tempted as a young broadcaster to say, hey, I need catchphrases, or do you, how do you approach just calling a big moment? It's a, it's a good question. And, yes, and, you know, everybody borrows from someone else, but there's only a point you can go to when it's, you know, plagiarism or pure thievery. From the standpoint, you know, Bill has acknowledged, I think, and whether he ever did with you in conversation, I know I've read it, that the beautiful term for which your city, our city, I lived there for 13 years, is named, Rip City, is Bill Shonley's creation. But he heard it in minor league baseball circles, whether it was another broadcaster, Leo Lassen or somebody in Tacoma doing a recreate or whatever. He heard someone say of baseball, maybe around the batting cage with – the Seattle Angels or Rainiers or whomever he was calling games for as he was coming up, Rip City. He heard it, and then when he appropriated it in the great story that Jeff Wohler just told you, it's it's a classic story, and he appropriated it at the exact right time, and he followed Jeff's counsel and left it in, we're all grateful to, to say, and it's the name of, of the city now, and it's what the Blazer franchise is all about, thanks to him. But it, I think he would even have told you it wasn't necessarily original with him. All of these things come somewhere along the way. He'd heard it somewhere, but he used it and popularized it and used it at the right time. And, I, you know, when I was first starting to do play-by-play, I had a lot of uh, basketball influence from Chick Hearn. And about the only thing that I still say that Chick used a lot, and I, I just use it because I heard it and remembered it, Chick would call, and he'd break down the court. He was one of those who could break down the detail of where the basketball was, how many feet away, and he'd say something like, Gail Goodrich into the front 47 to Jerry West. Okay, so I would hear that as a kid. Oh, the front 47, 47, front four. Oh, there's 94 feet. And Chick would refer to Chamberlain holds the ball high over his head, holds it like a raisin on this 94 by 50 hunk of wood. You know, that's how Chicky would okay. occasionally describe. And I and and so every once in a while, I find myself just out of uh, almost almost tribute, but also just out of, you know, I, well, that's a great way to put it, into the front 47. Chick also called the, around the key area, into the attacking zone. You know, and I don't know if that's more of a hockey phrase. I don't know if Bill, Bill used that much himself or not, but I, I probably early – use those phrases a little more often than I should, and I don't have them. I, you know, I don't feel like I have a catchphrase, John, and I feel like it's part of, you know, again, the, the lack of maturity through the years and the lack of being able to develop a lexicon like that, but I almost feel as though Mike Barrett has said the same thing to me. All the great phrases 
have already been taken. I give Wheels a great deal of credit. Brian Wheeler with Boom Shakalaka and, you know, Ring It Up and Count It and all. I thought Brian had a tremendous stock of phrases, too. But it's never been anything for me. It's more of a straight call when it comes to the action. But, you know, when it comes to big moments, I, I, I try to rise to the occasion and I know uh, occasionally maybe I hit it, but sometimes I feel I hit it over the top and get a little shrill and carried away. But, you know, that's <laughs> it's just the way things have developed for me. Yeah, and I think, too, you have to be true to the emotion of the moment. And I think you do a fantastic job, Mike, if I can say, uh, not only bringing the listener with you, but you do a great job of conveying the emotion and the importance of a moment. And... That can only come, I think, through really understanding what the players and the coaches are going through and what fans, by extension, are going through. That, I think, is – I'll say, John, thank you for saying it. I do think there's there, there's an element of truth in what you say about that, only in that I do you – know, I grew up listening to Scully, who was the master of objectivity, and you really wouldn't necessarily know whom he was rooting for, but I think the discerning listener could hear – if Ron Fairley had a drive to deep right center field, she is gone, would be a little more upbeat than if it was Jim Ray Hart doing the same thing against the Dodgers. You could kind of, you could tell a little bit of difference, and I think you should. What Vinny didn't do, Harry Carey, I, I saw a video of Harry Carey when I was a kid. There was a special on Harry, and he's jumping up and down with a handheld mic going crazy over a Chicago Cubs or White Sox home run. And or in Oakland, I think he was doing the Oakland A's when I saw this video of Harry, and I thought, wow, that he really loves his team. But I think, I think there's a sense and expectation from the fans that you better love your team, and you better be excited, and you better get excited about these moments. And it's not as though I've ever felt like I'm obliged to do it, therefore I've gotten excited. I do feel the fan in me over the years – does come to play maybe too often at times in terms of criticizing the officials or even letting, well, another turnover and we go the other way for on to, you know, yeah. if, if there's a moment where I'm feeling exasperated by the action that I'm seeing, sometimes that problem, that comes out a little bit too much. I remember an assistant coach at a radio show once, somebody played back a clip as a bump back into a show that I was doing with an Oregon State football assistant. In fact, it was Nigel Burton. Nigel was an, a guest, and the cut that they chose to play coming back out of a break was you know, a Washington State game in Pullman in 2003 where this one receiver for the Cougs kept getting open, and I'm saying on the air, and Nigel, the secondary coach, is hearing me say as, you know, back to throw over the middle, wide open again, is anybody ever going to cover that guy? <laughs> Nigel's head snapped. And stared at me, and his eyes like, did you really say that? And I had to take the headset off during a break and say, man, I'm sorry. Yes, I said it. I said it. But, you know, I think there are times, John, I hope that that kind of raw emotion, I hope, plays. You don't want to be too critical. You're working for young, you know, working for the university. And I think trying to put the, the young student athletes you're calling games for in the best possible light. But every once in a while, those kind of emotions will override. Mike Parker with us, Oregon State Radio play-by-play -play broadcaster. You've heard him for years. Um, we bring this up every year as Oregon and Oregon State play in the Civil War, or the game formerly known as the Civil War, uh, that there are some quirky things. Mike Parker, 
you attended Oregon. You're broadcasting at Oregon State. Don Essig was an Oregon State guy. He's the PA announcer at Autzen. I mean, there's a lot of crossover here. When you were a college kid, and I, if I had told you, hey, Mike, you're going to be a longtime broadcaster, beloved by Beaver Nation, you probably would have taken a swing at me. Well, I don't, you know, whether beloved by Beaver Nation, who knows whether that's the case or not, but I think <laughs> I would have been surprised first and foremost by that declaration by anyone but as i've said many times and i'm grateful for the opportunity they gave me on a far far lesser scale than that of rich brooks another quirky part of the story a beaver who became a coach for whom the field is named now in eugene but rich used a phrase that i've i've trotted out occasionally too that he said quote the university of oregon gave me an opportunity that i didn't get at my alma mater you know and so you know, Rich Rich was grateful for the opportunity he was given. And with Jerry entrenched and doing such a great job, I mean, there was certainly no path or door. They'd had a revolving door for a while before Jerry settled in. They had quite a few different play-by-play people, talented people and good people. But for whatever reason in the volatile profession, there was quite a bit of changeover in the 70s and into the 80s, different voices every one or two or three years. And Jerry got there in 87, and it was his, and it's still his, and I hope it's his for a long, long time. So there was, there really never was a path forward to that, to that job at my alma mater. And then when the Beaver job came open, uh, and, and I had the, the honor of getting to succeed one of the great voices our state has ever known in Daryl Lonnie, that was daunting enough and difficult in itself. Daryl, a tremendous broadcaster and one of my heroes in the profession. But when the opportunity came, I was deeply grateful that Oregon State, you know, in spite of my painted background before I got to school, gave me an opportunity, and I've been so grateful for it these last 25 years. What, what kind of advice do you give to young broadcasters? I'm sure they reach out to you. I think what, what we've been talking about in some of these uh, these heroic broadcasters in the golden age of, of Bill King, uh, and Bob Blackburn, Joe McConnell, Hot Rod Hundley, Kevin Calabro cited all of those folks, and of course, the the non-pareil in my view, and the great Bill Shonley, and and that is to you know Bill had a shtick, he had a personality, but it was authentic and real. He didn't ma- who he he was the Shans, and and he didn't have to manufacture anything. Whether a character and a personality developed through the years, and I think it did, you could sense that he was being authentic, he was true, he didn't want to be in any other place than where he was, you know, sitting uh, courtside at the Memorial Coliseum or wherever else. And I think that the the qualities that, that I hope to convey, uh, an authenticity, be true to who you are, be true to yourself, don't try to be Bill or Chick or Bill King or Dick Enberg or Scully or anybody else, I think we all have to kind of try to feel our way, but I, when people are sending me and sharing clips with me every once in a while is to have me listen in and evaluate, I think that sense of authenticity about who you are, let, yeah. <laughs> the old um, Phillips Brooks, I think I shared this with you once before, but the, the, the great preacher in Boston in 1873 in the 1870s, 1880s, the, the carol writer of a little town of Bethlehem. But Phillips Brooks said of preaching 
that good preaching back in the golden era of that sort of oratory in our land. But Brooke said, it's truth coming through a personality. Hmm. And so I've always felt as though that that's a, a good rule for any anybody undertaking any sort of oratorical of activity or, or uh, job, and that is try to convey truth. In other words, try to get the facts right, try to be accurate, try to spell the game out, try to give a sense of what's really going on, but let it come not just by rote, not just mechanically, but find find your personality and voice and let it come through that way. So the old uh, advice to preachers, let it be truth coming through a personality. I think those are qualities that serve anybody in any sort of public speaking role to some extent, even in play-by-play, something as humble as play-by-play. If you can deliver the truth, the facts, the game situation and the setting, and also at the same time have developed a little bit of something that's genuine and authentic to who you are, then you have a chance maybe to, to have a career. Let me ask you, Mike Parker, before I cut you loose here, that, you know, sometimes when I'm writing columns off games, you know, it, if, if it's a great game, it's an easier column to write. If there's a lot of enthusiasm, um, you know, I can see the angle clearer. Uh, if it's an absolute disaster, it's also interesting and intriguing. In the middle, you don't want it in the middle, right? And over the years at Oregon State, you've had some big successes like the Fiesta Bowl. You've had, you know, the Mike Riley era, like 29 wins in a three-year span. And mm-hmm. and now you have Jonathan Smith, who has brought a resurgence in enthusiasm. I have to ask how much fun you had this last season watching a 10-win team. It was beautiful, John. And I think there's even, you know, there, there are greater days still ahead, I believe. Uh, you know, what 10 wins, you know, people I know are already talking about, well, okay, what are we going to do next? Jim Wilson, my partner, whom I love and uh, have worked with and enjoyed for 19 years with the Beavers. But Jim says, well, the next is to compete legitimately for, to go into, you know, for the Pac-12 championship. Mike Riley got there a couple of times with a plane for a chance to go and came up. (laughs) There are regrets. There are are things that that still hurt, and those losses in 08 and 09 still hurt. All of Beaver Nation, they still hurt me when I think about those days. But... This year was just a joy, and the joy of seeing how far Jonathan brought it and what Trent Bray has done with the defense. John, it's just been it's been a, a thrill to get to still, you know, to war, having worked through some really tough times and low periods, to get to see what Jonathan, a favorite son of mine, through uh, the years I've had a chance to call Beaver games, to call his Fiesta Bowl MVP days, to call his days as a coach. It's an honor, and I'm excited about what's ahead. And in the midst of all of this, too, in the mid-2000s, baseball rose to great heights that gave me an opportunity to experience absolute exhilaration. Mm. So there have been a lot of wonderful moments uh, getting to call these games. And I'm looking forward, I hope, (laughs) to quite a few more. Mike Parker, voice of Oregon State Athletics. Thank you for your time. Keep doing what you do. I think you have a genuine bond, just like I told Jerry Allen. There's a bond that you guys have with your audience that – that I, I don't you know I, I don't think it's that much different than what Bill Shonley had with his audience and so I wanted to bring you guys on and let the audience hear you talk a little bit but thank you for what you do thank you thank you John and you know the the major the big difference of course is that Bill spoke to an entire state and there were no 
There was no rivalry game, Civil War divisions. Mm. You know? Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, so he had he he had the the well earned and uh, love and loyalty of, of people all over our state and region, and with his great talent and the, the reciprocated love that he had. Uh, they, 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 there's too much bitterness and, and perhaps rivalry at times uh, in in our. You know, Oregon State, Oregon rivalry day for any one person in, in the role, no matter what, to have that same kind. Of, and we're in a different era now, too. Radio Bill, right. Bill got started when radio was still king, and and he remained uh, uh, on the throne for a long time. I really appreciate, John, you having me on to share a few thoughts about one of the great ones of all time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. It. Thank you, Mike Parker, voice of Oregon State. Uh, on today's show, both Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks, and Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. If you missed any of that, you'll want to grab the podcast of this show. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I have had a lot of fun on today's show interviewing uh, Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks, and Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. Um, I, uh, you know, maybe some of this is me on radio talking to you, listening to radio, but I just feel like the connection that those broadcasters have with their audiences, their respective audiences, um, is remarkable it's unique you're in a relationship with the broadcaster and in particular i remember being in that relationship with many play-by-play broadcasters i'll take your phone calls if you want to call in and talk about those interviews at 503-417-7575 i also have some thoughts as well about you know Parker and Allen and kind of the dynamic between the Ducks and the Beavers. I think it's really interesting that these two guys, to me, I see them all the time. I see them in respective press boxes all the time. I don't often get to talk to them in the same place at the same time. And it's interesting to me that they don't really get that opportunity to talk to each other because I think they both have incredible bonds with their audiences. Mike is in Salem. Mike, what'd you think today? I thought it was great. I really did. I thought you did a great job interviewing those guys, and I just absolutely love Mike Parker. I've been a season ticket holder now for 25 years at, at Research Stadium, and and I always tune in Parker as I watch the game right during the stands because you get far better analysis. You get much better everything when it comes to watching the game. My only disappointment is if you go to, like, like Seattle and watch them play play the Huskies, which we do quite often. You can't get the local guy that you want to listen to. It's just so delayed, and that's a problem they need to they need to fix, in my opinion. But nonetheless, even even when I watch the Oregon games, which the only I only root against the Ducks one game a year, but <laughs> I want to listen to the local broadcast. I really do because that is far better than anything else yeah. you're going to get on TV or anywhere else. Yep, you get a connection with the broadcaster. You get a connection with the team. You have a bond. Uh, you get insight that you don't get. I think a lot is lost. Look, we've talked a lot about broadcasting in the last week. Frankly, um, I don't like the trend in television for the broadcasters to not be on site. It, it's one more step removed. Not only are they not, not the local broadcaster, 
you know, some of them are doing remote broadcasts. And I get it. It's cost-cutting. It saves them money. It allows them to have broadcasters who aren't traveling, who aren't um, – uh, they don't have to hire extra bodies. You know, they can use one broadcaster in college football season to call the Thursday night game, the Friday game, and the Saturday game twice. It could be the same broadcaster. I get it. I understand there's an investment in the infrastructure. I still don't have to like it. I like my broadcaster uh, telling me about somewhere that I haven't been and taking me with them on the journey. Theater of the mind so to speak. Um, I really enjoyed those two interviews. Peter Sampson, as you heard those two guys talk, what did you think today? Yeah, I mean, you talk about the connection that they have, and it's so funny. Uh, when you asked Mike Parker about his time with the Trailblazers, that unlocked a core memory of me being a teenager. I had totally forgot that he was part of the post game. As soon as he said it, I was transported back to my bedroom listening to that voice do the fifth quarter. I even called in a few times. I was that rabid of a fan. And uh, yeah, I, I completely related to that connection that you guys were actually talking about. So I'm glad that that got brought up. Yeah, I th- I think for a lot of people who are fans of these respective teams, you're in good hands with Mike Parker, you're in good hands with Jerry Allen, as Blazer fans were over the years with Bill Shonley and, you know, and later Brian Wheeler and and now Travis Demers and you know, but there's to me and I don't know if I speak for Duck fan or Beaver fan. I I know when I listened to back to Bill Shonley clips and talk to people over decades about Bill Shonley. I understand why the guy connected with his audience. I understand why Mike Parker and Jerry Allen connect as well. They've got it. They're, you're in a relationship with these guys. They're alongside you. I think it was Jerry Allen who said, you know, he got advice early in his broadcast career. He's, you know, describe the game like you're describing it to a friend of yours who's sight impaired and sitting next to you. I mean, it's beautiful because that's really – the I think the job of a lot of broadcasters in our you know that do it well and do it at a high level. I think John Strong, the voice of American soccer, right in there with those guys, just fantastically talented, immensely talented. Um, and uh, you know I I just love picking the brains of broadcasters and hearing what their experience is like. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up right here on 750, the game, top of the hour. Oh, I can't wait to see what Peter's going to talk about. What are you going to talk about? Yeah, uh, we're officially in uh, trade season in the NBA, so we're going to do a Blazers trade primer. It's going to be interesting. There, I don't know if they have the tools to be as active as people hope, but there's some possibilities out there. And then, of course, man, I, we got to talk about the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland, congrats to him, but... It's kind of interesting. Six years, he goes from 10% of the ballot to getting yeah. 75%. I, I don't know. There? There's something weird there, right? Yeah, and uh, look, I have a vote. I understand what it is. The The voters get criticized, got just roasted a couple of years ago when they inducted nobody. So I think there's some voters who go, hey, you have to wait your turn. You're not a first ballot guy. You're not a second ballot guy. I will consider you at year three, four, five. Again, if you get a certain percentage of the vote, you uh, you start to move towards getting the 75 percent, and you stay on the ballot. But um, you you know some of the some of the people who are voting are probably new 
There are probably some new members. Maybe there's some younger voters who saw more of Scott Rowland. So the voting pool is changing, but I, I think you're onto something because I think there's a real temptation and a real pressure as some of these guys start to get 50, 60, set low 70% of the vote to say, oh, they're close, let's put them in. Well, what was wrong with, you know, Scott Rowland four years ago? He's the same player. What happened there? So you can kick that around. I think that'll be a lot of fun. I got one for you guys, too, real quick. But the NBA announced today that the All-Star Game, which will be taking place on February 19th in Salt Lake City, the All-Star Game draft of the teams will take place right before the game. The captains will be drafting from the pool of players. This is like grade school. They're going to line them up. I, I love it. I think it's going to be great TV. It's really fun. But, like, are they going to be able to get a practice in? I wonder how this is going to affect the uh, the gambling on the All-Star game because it's going to be really last minute to know who the teams are. Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess you got to bet on the GM at this point. You know, <laughs> who's going to draft the better team? But um, I guess we can see the discomfort of certain players as they are passed over. I actually think they should line them up like they used to do in uh, – you know, uh, Mr. LaCurcy's, uh fifth grade, line up the uh, line up the players on the playground, and pick two captains, and uh, watch people squirm, watch the discomfort as that takes place. Uh, I guess uh, we'll find out what happens for the All Star Game. All right, I want you to stick around for Peter Sampson and the Pulse right here on 750 The Game. Uh, for those of you who want a podcast of today's show, Mike Parker, voice of the Beavers. Jerry Allen, voice of the Ducks. Jeff Wohler, longtime statistician for Bill Shonley. We talked a lot about inside broadcasting. We got inside baseball on broadcasting. Tomorrow's show will be very NFL heavy. We've got, you know, uh, the NFC and AFC championship games coming up this weekend. Niners at Eagles. I'm leaning Niners. Bengals playing at the Chiefs. Um, as a friend of mine said, uh, I guess you're taking the team with the quarterback who has two good legs. Yes, so far, that's where I'm, I'm going. I'm going Bengals, Niners, road teams winning. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up. Leave it here. The bald-faced truth is out.